This episode contains major plot spoilers for M. Night Shyamalan's thriller, Signs, from 2002. This is Carl from Movie Podcast Weekly, and you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. (laughs) Except Carl doesn't even watch horror movies. (laughs) Uh, Am I wrong? Am I wrong about that? No, 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 but but you just blew it, so... Hi, and welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a weekly show that's released every Friday, and this is episode 69. That's right, baby. On Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I am your host, Jay of the Dead, and I'm podcasting from Salt Lake City. And tonight we have a Frankensteinian episode, which is our hodgepodge mixture of whatever we end up reviewing on various nights with various recording sessions, with various hosts and guests. And so it's always a surprise. And to be honest with you, as much as I love our themed episodes, this is my personal favorite kind of episode next to the top 10 lists at the end of the year, of course. But aside from that, I love Frankensteinian episodes because you never know what you're going to get. And so we have a series of uh, great reviews tonight with my great co-hosts and with great guests. So without further delay, let's move into episode 69 of Horror Movie Podcast. All right, and at this point in Horror Movie Podcast, going to bring on a very special guest. He hasn't been here in a while, and we have missed him. We welcome the host of the Dead as Hell Horror Podcast. He has earned his name, One Sick Puppy. Welcome back, sir. Thank you. Good evening. Well, <laughs> thanks. So, it's just so gentlemanly and everything, and you were just calling me a bunch of names a minute ago, so I, I'm very impressed with the way you can switch it on and off like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. I kept one sick puppy waiting. I was podcasting over on Movie Podcast Weekly, and, you know, sometimes it's it's like, it's kind of crazy, right? We just go on and on and on. So what's going on with the Dead as Hell Horror Movie Podcast? Can you give us some updates on your show? It's cool. I've been podcasting with uh, Stevie Mendoza, and uh, she's kind of helping me update my style a little bit. And I've mm-hmm. had some guests on. I had the uh, author of Tremors Guide, which is a guide to the Tremors franchise, one through four, and the television series. And he is going to be on the show this weekend that I'm going to release. Wow. And he's a lovely gentleman from Scotland. The gentleman's name is Jonathan Melville. But uh, yeah, he was really cool. His book was great. Uh, Seeking Perfection is the name of that. And uh, you could. Follow him on Twitter, Tremors Guide, and uh, check out his book. It was really cool. So that's coming up. So by the time this episode releases, because we're recording this right now while we're still in the throes of our Scream reviews, and so this is going to come out in a couple weeks from now. So they'll be able to go to your site. Can you tell them where to find your site one more time? Deadashell.com. Okay. So we haven't had Shani Dreadful in a while. I, I have to say I really miss her, though. I mean, yeah, I, I, I do. do, too. She's... uh. She's actually going to be on this upcoming show with me as well, reviewing Sharknado 3. Okay, cool. Uh, she is uh, with child and Aww. just about to pop. 
and so she has uh, put the podcasting aside and onto more important things, obviously. Uh, but she made a uh, exception to come help me out with uh, Sharknado 3 because we had so much fun <laughs> doing the first two. And uh, yes. so I was actually really excited to get to work with her again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, she seems like a lovely person. I'm a big fan of her. So I'm glad she's coming back for that. Yeah. That's good. And congratulations to her for the the little one. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe she'll name him One Sick Puppy 2 or something. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I would hate to do that to anybody. So, so before we jump into this feature review of Sinister 2, sir, I, I want to talk to you about something like, and, and I'm, I'm being serious about this too. What did I it, do? No, no, you you haven't done anything <laughs> wrong, but I'm glad well, to- I've done lots of stuff wrong. <laughs> that I, I know of. what I talk about. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm really glad to have you on here in particular, because for the listeners who are new to this podcast- if you're not familiar with One Sick Puppy, I have to say, he is a hardcore horror fan. I mean, he's straight up a legit. Um, one evening, I remember Josh and I wanted to talk about The Gift, which isn't strictly horror at all. It's just a thriller. And he's like, nah, I, I'm not interested. You know, and I just, you know, I admire that because you you have your standards, you have your vision set. And so because you're you and the way you feel about films, there is a movie I want to talk to you about real quick that's in theaters as we record this show right now. I just saw it. Um, apologies to the the crossover listeners from Movie Podcast Weekly. You've heard me talk about this. But there's a film out now called No Escape. Have you seen the trailers for that? Uh, tell me something about okay. it. It stars Owen Wilson and Lake Bell. And is this the one where he's supposed to be an action star? Oh well, he's not an action star, but it's a straight dramatic role. And no, uh, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I, I heard he was in a movie where he, he was an action. It was an action role, and you know he was supposed to be a, uh, you know Tom Cruise kind of shoot him up or whatever. And I was just like, there's no way that works. Yeah, you, you may be thinking of No Escape because I think maybe people. Um, take that from the trailer and it is considered on IMDb as an action thriller. I think for most people, One Sick Puppy, they would classify this as a thriller first and a drama second. And I mean high, high drama. But I, by my standards, which I know are <laughs> not above reproach, especially on this podcast, I consider this, because of the experience I had with it, I consider it a survival horror film, and then I would say thriller, drama. So here's what you got. Let me just tell you about this, and I want to see how this affects you, okay? Okay. No spoilers here, but um, Owen Wilson plays this dad, and he's married to Lake Bell, who's the mom, and they have two little girls. He gets a job, well, he has a job, and his job leads him to this Asian country. They They make a point of not mentioning the name of the Asian country. They don't want to identify it. But it does border Vietnam, if that tells you anything. <laughs> I, nope. I, I didn't have time to look look it up. but I'm American. We know nothing about geography. <laughs> I know. We're just such ethnocentrists. But yes. anyway, <laughs> um, he, he gets called there to work with his company, and he brings his, his whole family there as two little girls. They're fairly young. They're like, 
about 10 and 8, something like that. And his company is redoing the water for the country and um, presumably giving them cleaner water. Well, while they are there, right after they arrive, um, the prime, and this is the premise, no spoilers, the prime minister is assassinated and um, a coup begins, this really violent revolutionary military uprising. And uh, the people are angry about this company and the water situation. And they are intending to kill all of the people affiliated with this company, which of course puts um, Owen Wilson and his family in extreme peril. Okay, so now for the horror fans out there, now let me let me just give you a little bit of, in case you're starting to zone out from me and tune out, um, this is written and directed by um, John Eric Dowdle, who people will know from the Poughkeepsie Tapes, of the Poughkeepsie Tapes fame. Um, he's a director of As Above, So Below, Devil, Quarantine. So I, I hope I've, that's gotten some people's attention. And I will say again, I think this is really... I mean, did you feel one sick puppy? What did you feel about the purge? I did, I don't even think I finished watching the purge. I don't. It was god awful. So I may the have first watched one? the first one. Yeah, I may have watched the first one all the way through. Now that I'm really thinking about it, but no, it was a horrible movie. So when I think you, it's a good idea, but okay, it didn't work as a movie. Now, when you say it was um, awful, do you mean it was awful for a horror film experience or just as a film experience in general? All of the above. Oh, really? Okay. So, do you consider the first part, not the second one, but the first one, do you consider that a horror film? Uh, yeah, I guess. It was just a really bad one. I guess mm. now that you're asking me that question, I I guess it could be a thriller and not a horror movie. Mm. But I was I was really just so upset with it. I just, uh, I, I wasn't in a hurry to see it. And when I finally did watch it, uh... I was just so unimpressed. I didn't even really consider it. Wow. Okay. See, I would call that first one a horror film because it's it's definitely got a home invasion feel to it. They're wearing masks and and so forth, and it's pretty violent and and upsetting. And and so this is kind of along those lines, except this family isn't. It isn't a home invasion. This family is on the move, and they're trying to escape this deadly situation. Now, the first thing I want people to know about No Escape, One Sick Puppy, is that it, it is shot with hyper-realism, okay? This isn't like a Sylvester Stallone movie or a Schwarzenegger movie, okay? This is like, it seems like you're watching documentary footage, like with the violence and stuff. And it's not that it's explicit per se, but it is pretty disturbing. Like they have executions and stuff. I mean, these, these revolutionaries are killing people. And it shows, it, and it shows it, and it seems real. How do how are they killing people? Well, I mean, various execution style, and and there's one I don't want to um, spoil it because it, it is kind of a shock. But um, there there's one scene when they're lining up like five people, and um, what they do is it's really it kind of takes it took my breath a little bit. It kind of gasped a little bit. So I will. Tell people too up front. This is another upfront thing to say is I think a reason why this film affected me so strongly. I mean, this affected me more and worse than Sinister 2, which we're going to review next. I mean, it affected me a lot more than that. But I mean, I'm a father. I have two little kids about this age. 
And so I think just relating to the character so much really drew me into it. But from what I'm describing so far, I mean, it's extremely suspenseful and it is disturbing and upsetting. And it's like, it's kind of hard to get your breath, at least for me. I think for people who aren't um, sensitive or they don't have kids, maybe it won't affect them the same way. But are you intrigued by what I'm describing or is this not up your alley? No, it's not. It's really not. And especially not uh, since it stars Owen Wilson. <laughs> I just don't think. No, I mean, I like the guy. He's He can be funny and everything, but he's he's pretty much Owen Wilson and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope he doesn't hear this because he's a depressing kind of guy in his personal life. But I just I don't see him having any sort of range at all. And I just I don't think he could pull it off and. I don't think I could suspend disbelief enough to not be sitting there saying, okay, that's Owen Wilson. Right. So I just, no, I'm really not interested. Well, I, I see what you're saying and I can appreciate that. And I think a lot of people will have that problem with it because in, before the stuff hits the fan, I mean, before it really gets down to business, um, he's still basically his Owen Wilson character, the same character you always know, but less comedic. I mean, but he's the same guy. But then when it, you know, when the action starts, it's almost like the suspense is so strong on this um, that you don't have, at least for me, I didn't have time to think about, okay, this is Owen Wilson and he's in this thriller type movie. You know, I was just, I was like, oh man, he's a dad. He's got to get his family out of there. And and it just does not let up. This is intense um, I just thought I would recommend it for the horror fans. It is not a traditional, straight-up horror film, but it's it's horror to me, and I would call it survival horror. That's why I loved it so much. It affected me so much, One Sick Puppy, that I probably won't watch it again. I don't think I could, to be honest. Yeah, you've gotten in trouble for your survival horror tag before, though. <laughs> I know, but, I mean, I classify it. And I think that this this stands. I think that this is defensible when I say survival horror is when you have characters in a dangerous situation that becomes deadlier the longer they're in it. And unless, you know, and they're stuck in that situation, unless they get out of it, then they're dead. And that's exactly this. And the reason it crosses over into horror is because of the the atrocities that happen during the film. Very upsetting. But I, I would... If people out there, if this sounds like something that you'd be willing to try, I mean, I typically wouldn't review something like this on a horror movie podcast, but for me, this is a survival horror flick, no doubt about it. And to me, it's a 9.5 out of 10. And the only reason I'm taking off a half point is because the kids are remarkably quiet for kids. And if anybody has kids, you know, you cannot keep them quiet, especially when they have to be quiet. That was a little bit unrealistic. It was a little bit unrealistic how their pursuers are always on their tail every second they can find them. And um, that's a little bit unrealistic. And then Pierce Brosnan has a small supporting role in this. And um, his character is a little annoying and unrealistic. So that those three things take off a half point. Otherwise, it's one of the best films of the year. So I'd say see it in the theater. If it's still in theaters when you hear this review... And otherwise, I think it's worth a buy, although I don't know that I could revisit it. Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this is uh, probably just a thriller with some violence at nowhere near a 9.5. <laughs> I dare you. 
to go see it then. I challenge uh, you to see it. Take your sweetheart, go see it together, and then tell me how you feel about it. Because I'd like to get your take on this, because I think it's pretty intense. I mean, it's strong material. Stronger than I thought it would be, honestly. So, and 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 it doesn't impress you at all that it's the Brothers Dowdle, right? I mean, the... The fact that it's the Poughkeepsie tapes people behind it, you don't know. No, that was that was cool, I think, and uh as above, so below was cool. But they weren't just like blow you away kind of awesome. Not they they weren't high enough quality that hearing their name wants me to go see makes me want to go see this movie. Okay. And just uh What about the fact that Jay of the Dead said nine point five? You should see it, brother. What about that? Yeah, if you hadn't have called it survival horror, maybe. <laughs> okay, I'll just call it horror. No, it's not horror. <laughs> you haven't seen it. I dare you. I double dog dare you to see it. I bet you twenty bucks. Doc says it's not horror. Doctor Shock. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. That's a good. But let's bet a movie. Let's bet a movie or something fun. <laughs> like if Doc says it's horror, I'll watch it. Well, Doctor Shock, huh? So you're gonna you're gonna take his word over mine. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> he's he's the one that always calls you out on that so mm-hmm. you know okay. i can't what was the what was the movie where they were in the the sky chair or whatever on the avalanche oh, or frozen track? yeah frozen you said that was survival horror and, and yes it, was like, it is <laughs> I, I don't think he agreed with you on that one well that, that one always comes to mind here's what, the thing that's the first thing that comes into my mind when you say survival <laughs> horror is doc shock saying no here, here's the thing though about that I don't care I mean Dr. Shock is very tough no doubt about that he is I know this about him but if anybody in this audience if you were on a ski lift and you and you jumped off <laughs> still trying to sell this I'm just saying and wolves were coming to eat you you would be crying like a little girl whizzing your pants I mean seriously that's scary stuff eh? this thing goes Frozen goes horror, I think. I mean, I it's it's mild horror. You know, there's not a ton of horror in it. I'll give you all those things. But, man, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> so, that doesn't make it horror. Well, it, it does because <clears throat> these people, once again, are stuck in a situation that the longer they're in it, the deadlier it becomes. So, brother, I can't you can wait. You say that about World War II, though. I mean, you could say that about... Any movie set in World War II is that these people are, you know, assuming they're Jewish. If, they're in a situation, and the longer they're in it, the worse it gets. The closer to death they come, and the suspense builds, but that doesn't make it a horror movie. Okay, but if any World War II veterans are still alive, you know, ask them if that was horror. Serious. I mean, Well, that's a, that's a big difference, though. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> so I dare China, you. China Beach, the TV show, right? I, I haven't mean, that seen it. Show, that's a it's like an eighties TV show or nineties, maybe I don't know, but okay. it's set in the Vietnam War, and you see horrible things happen. It, you know, you see people injured and whatnot. It's not as graphic as as what you're talking about, but I mean, those people are in the same sort of situation, but it's not horror. It's a it's a different thing, and just because you see suspense building and you see violence and and the the peril i mean practically any movie in which someone is in peril it's supposed to build throughout the entire movie and it just i don't know i think you have a looser definition than what i think which is funny because a lot of people say i have a very strict definition so i get 
I get criticized for how strict it is and how I am always like, you know, ruling out horror films. So yours is even stricter than mine, apparently. Who knows, man? Yeah, I know. It's it's really interesting, isn't it? But um, I would love, I, I just want to challenge you. I would love for you to see No Escape and let me know what you think about it. But um, I don't know if you know our friend Jeff Hammer, but he did not like the film personally. He didn't like it, but I'm still mad at him for that. So anyway, that I is. Know. I really don't want to see this movie. So uh, Doc <sighs> will have to tell me if he wants to see, if he wants, if it's horror, if he, if, if he says it's horror. I will watch this movie, but that's as hilarious. It sits, your description is not enough to make me want to see this Owen Wilson die hard piece it, of crap. It's not die. So he's not even an action hero is the thing though. That's what you got to know. Like I know that you were under that impression, but he's not, I just want you to know that he's a regular guy, which makes it even more effective, but okay. So 9.5, no escape. I say, go see it and let us know what you think in the comment boards. I'd love to get your feedback on it. That'd be great. So at this point, let's move into our feature review of Sinister 2. Karen? Oh, baby. Anyways, let's, uh, let's get ready for bed. Can we just watch till the next commercial? Come on. I don't like it when you boys watch stuff like that before bed, okay? So let's go. Come on. It's not real, Mom. It's okay if it's not real. Sinister 2 basically kind of picks up after the first one. And you've got a mom and her two uh, sons who are on this piece of property with a old church next to it. She is a furniture restorer and she has brought them out here to escape an abusive husband. And in the investigation of the murders from the first movie, the deputy, who unfortunately is not given a name in this movie either, uh, has continued and pieced together more of this lore behind the murders that Ethan Hawke found out in the first movie. And as he recognizes this pattern, he comes to this property to destroy it, to try to cut off this avenue for this uh, entity, and finds it inhabited, and then becomes involved with them and their situation as they deal with it. And, um, I don't know. I, I didn't really care for the movie. Mm -hmm. You caught me totally unawares. Uh, the, <laughs> you didn't tell me I was going to have to do a synopsis. I'm just, uh, no, that, that was a <clears throat> tremendous synopsis. That was okay. way better than I could have done. But I, first I got to know one sick puppy. How, how did you feel about the first sinister? I really liked it. And I just watched it today as a matter of fact. And I, I've, I've seen it two or three times and I still really like it. I think it's a good movie. Me too. Are you like in the, like what, what rating range are you in on that one? Just so I well, have an I, idea. You know, I certainly wouldn't give it a 9.5 because it didn't have Owen Wilson in it, but I would say it's probably a <laughs> seven and a half, eight. Yeah. That's exactly what I think. Some, some point five or eight, <laughs> by the way, this is a random side note. You just reminded me of it. It's all your fault. Do uh, you know that Michael Bay movie Armageddon? Yeah. Okay. In that <laughs> in that movie Armageddon, there's this hilarious line when they're trying to describe what it will be like on the surface of the asteroid. And Owen Wilson's character says, basically, the scariest environment imaginable. <laughs> That's all you had to say. Scariest environment imaginable. Anyway. That's hilarious because in this film, No Escape, he's in 
the scariest environment imaginable. <laughs> like, and and I kind of wanted him to say that line, but he didn't. Yeah. Anyways, back to this. So sorry, that was your fault. You did that, but of course. Um, <clears throat> Sinister Two. So you didn't like this as much as the first one, but why didn't you like it? I I didn't like this movie at all. Uh, it was completely unnecessary. It pretty much. The thing about the first movie and a lot of movies like this is the thing that makes it so appealing in the first installment is the the whittling that gets you to the you know the answer as to what's going on and as the lore unfolds it's very interesting mm-hmm. but if you already know everything and you're just trying to put a new spin on it unless you're really good it's just not going to work and you know, there were, there wasn't just a whole lot that you could do except put another family in the exact same situation. Uh, they tried to spin it by putting it on the children or showing it from their point of view this time. Mm-hmm. And it, I thought it was a cool trick that the uh, family was running from an abused father and that they left this property and thereby exposed themselves to the peril by him trying to get his children back. That that was a cool little trick, but unfortunately there wasn't anything but that, you know, that was really good enough writing to pull this off. You know, I'm with you. I think one of my biggest criticisms is the way that, I mean, I think we, our complaints are along the same lines they delve they delve more deeply they try to go farther into as you say the lore behind this um this being bagul is the monster character right yeah and um and the re- and as you said so well too that it's more on the children and so you have in this movie you have a group of evil kids that are ghostly evil kids so it's like an evil kid ghost movie really and they're in the film more than any other like negative character right i mean bagul is in it relatively little which i think is i'm glad that they're keeping him more mysterious and i do like that character although i have to say more and more he's reminding me of michael jackson in his appearance and it's oh that's cold man i mean i mean here's the thing i i actually love michael jackson and i like bagul but i do not want them affiliated (laughs) do you know what i mean and i'm not making a joke either i just realized the children connection but i'm actually a defender of michael jackson but i'm just saying that um appearance wise that's that's the only thing i took from that but that's that's cold yeah well i mean with his hair stringy and down over his face i mean it does kind of he does have a Michael Jackson look to him in it. And, and I did think about that and it was kind of bothering me a little bit. Although I do think he's a cool monster. One of the cooler monsters in horror that we've gotten in recent years. Uh, how? I can't even. What? I don't know how you can say he makes you think of Michael Jackson and then say he's one of the coolest things we've gotten in years. Because I love Michael Jackson. I think Michael Dude. Jackson's awesome. Oh my God. What? No, that's, that's, it's not cool to Michael Jackson. I don't think it's correct about this character. And it, <laughs> they totally contradict each other. 
Well, that's uh, I'm telling you that the association of the two is bothering me. I mean, I have some cognitive dissonance going on there. But the thing is, is before people even see it, you're putting that in their minds. So when they see it, they're going to think, oh, Michael Jackson. (laughs) Well, they've seen the first Sinister, I presume, right? So they know the character, but... But these kids, though, One Sick Puppy, I mean, did these kids bother you? Because they don't even give us any context or setup. We're seeing these kids and it's like, okay, he's kind of pale looking, that kid. Is he a ghost? And then you don't, you aren't really clued into that until like later in the film. Oh, yeah, okay, well, these are apparitional or they're they're ghost type kids. I knew it as soon as I saw him. Okay. Well, they look I mean, ghostish. From seeing the first movie, you know that the, the kids are, you know, the majority of the kids in the movie are dead. And you know how the, the trick works. And you see the guy and he's gray. So, I don't know. As soon as I saw him, I knew that was a dead kid. But, but the fact that they're like in this film and it's almost like from the outset, it, they're in it so casually and so freely in the, in the live children are reacting to them so little, you know, because if I, if I were a little kid and I saw other ghostly kids, I'd be pretty flipped out by that, but they're barely reacting. So it's almost like just like kids down the street, like neighbor kids. And that kind of, that's one of the things that bothered me about this. I'm like, why are we all so casual about this flock of ghost children? (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing menacing about these kids at all. Mm -mm. It's like at the, at the very beginning of the movie, you see one of the brothers that's alive laying in his bed, turned over. Similarly, as the little girl was in the first movie, and she is, she looks scared, and he looks scared, and then you pan over, and they're actually looking at one of these little ghost kids. Well, she was actually scared out of her mind, and I thought this kid was as well, and it happens so quickly in the movie that I... At this point, I hadn't already realized that the movie sucked. So I'm thinking, okay, you know, it's it's a callback and, and here we go, you know, hold on. But then all of a sudden, he's just like, you know, do you want to go watch a movie? Okay, I'll go watch a movie with you. Uh, you know, and there's like no, it's just, I don't know. It, it was a complete waste. The The actual little brothers are more menacing than these ghostly children who have, you know, slaughtered their families. And yeah. So you're saying the live children are more threatening. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Which is particularly interesting because the one, the lead live children child is not necessarily <laughs> a bad seed, you know? So he, yeah, his, his older, his brother though is actually, you know, pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah, he As the is. the movie goes on. Yeah, because he's like kind of a weird kid, but I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm surprised, just knowing you as I do, I'm surprised that you're so hard on this film because I do think it's a pretty dark type of horror film. I think it's, I mean, when you have a, a horror film open with a, a family being executed, including young people in the family, which is one of the really troubling things about this sinister monster here, the bagul, is the, the fact that families get it. And I think that it was in the first movie, but the, I mean, the problem with this is the guy the, buries their family on Christmas. You know, you see him opening presents and stuff. And I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to open these, these folks like presents. This is going to be sick. He takes them out <laughs> and buries them 
in like six inches of snow and lets them freeze to death. So you're saying the the family slayings were underwhelming in their the nature of their troublingness. <laughs> yeah, it was just ridiculous. I mean, the mm-hmm. first one they showed, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Well, okay, but there is there is a slaying of people that is set in the church and that we won't talk about what it is because it's kind of like one of the highlights of the film and I think it is meant to be because we hear we get teasers about what this is and the way that happened which my understanding is that was actually that's been a real method used in non-horror wars as you would say yeah which they showed on like the third season of Game of Thrones (laughs) right that's been spent and they knew that well before this movie Wait, but I'm just saying I mean that's still pretty horrifying right it is the first time you see it, but I don't know. I was not impressed. I was not impressed. You were not impressed. Okay. See. And the effects were bad on that scene anyway. I don't know. I mean, I I don't know. Some once. Okay. I guess we can't talk about it because it's a spoiler. So, but <laughs> I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on the effects thing. I think it was decent. It, it passed off enough for me. But, but yeah, I mean, I agree with you to the extent that Get these ghost kids out of here. Well, everybody knows I'm kind of hard on ghost stuff anyway. But I mean, especially the fact that they were, as you say, non-threatening kids. And they're hanging out at the house like their neighbor kids. It really bothered me. And they're the majority of the, like, the monstrous force. I mean, that's who you see the most. And um, it's Yeah, just- they're having conversations throughout the whole movie. And what really just completely takes the legs out from under it is when the brother says, oh, yeah, I can see him, too. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, so are we supposed to be scared? What's the big deal? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, yeah, he doesn't even care. It's I mean, and it's not like a suspenseful plot point, you know, that the music builds and they're like, oh, my God, he can see him, too. No, it's just like, hey, dude, I can see him, too. You want some Kool-Aid? Yeah, exactly. It's it's extremely casual. And I have to say, I, I am disappointed. I, I mean, ultimately, I was disappointed in this film because it definitely doesn't live up to the first one. I don't think I'm as hard on it as you are. But like the writers, okay, it was written by Scott Derrickson and um, C. Robert Cargill. And for those who don't know, I, I'm actually a big fan of C. Robert Cargill. He, his his name is also Massaworm over it. Ain't it cool news? He's a writer there and he's been a film critic for a long time. Um, and, and I've listened to him on a lot of podcasts, so I actually dig that guy quite a bit. I think he's cool. And I bet you that that slaying in the church was his idea, just knowing him as I do. But Scott Derrickson directed the first Sinister and that guy knows a lot about horror. I've heard him in interviews and I really like the way that he thinks about horror. So I was surprised that this one wasn't nearly as, um, affecting as the first one. And I guess, you know, it's hard. The sophomoric effort <laughs> for a film, it's really hard to come up with a sequel, I guess. And I don't know how much leeway we can give them for that. But why do you think that Scott Derrickson, if you had to guess, did not direct this? And it was, um, how do you na- say that name? Uh, Sierra Foy? Yeah, I'm not sure how to pronounce <laughs> that. That's I the- would... Mm-hmm. If if he's intelligent, he didn't direct it because he knew there was no way it was going to be as popular as the first movie. If you believe what you read on the internet, the first movie cost like $3 million to make, and it made almost $80 million. And yeah. uh, this one cost $11 million to make, 
and you know maybe maybe twice that in the first two weeks or first mm-hmm. week and a half yes it's just if if he was probably looking out for his career but if you go to the ain't it cool website or whatever and look up your little buddy i bet he's a game of thrones fan <laughs> oh yeah there's no doubt about it he likes game yeah. of thrones that's for sure which means he ripped it off from game of thrones well see so here's makes the it even worse well, the thing about him, though, I got to defend C. Robert Cargill, or a.k.a. Massa Worm, because he does know his his stuff. Yeah, he's very well-read, well-researched, so I'm certain that he would have seen that before Game of Thrones. I'm certain about that. But, but by if the you're way... you're giving both these guys so much credit, then how come this movie sucks so much? Well, well that's exactly what I'm, I'm asking right now, because, yeah, they're both extreme. They both know the genre really well. They're genre guys, and and I am kind of surprised by that. But now I can't speak to the direct for the director though. Uh, uh, Sierran, I'm sorry, I don't pronounce it right, but Foy, he directed that film, um, Citadel from 2012. I saw that, and I found that very underwhelming as well. So, do you want to blame the director? I don't know if you can totally do that. I mean, I think the problem in this film is really at the story level, don't you? Yeah, definitely. So I did think it was cool uh, the flashlight trick. I don't know if you if you want to mention what that was, but mm-hmm. go ahead. The, uh, the when the deputy is in the church investigating, uh, he hope, as he's uh, looking down the hallway, you know, he's got his flashlight in his hand, and he can see a shadow of a child. Well, he brings it down and brings it back up, and you can see another shadow of a child closer to him. And I think they do it one more time. It seems like they did it too many times. I thought it was cool, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, overused. But, you know, right. I mean, that that was cool. And like I say, the, the situation that got them out of the house was cool. But, you know, I could, I could re- be really specific and tell you, you know, there's all kinds of stuff about this movie I didn't like if, I, if we were going to spoil it. But, you know, that, it's just... In my opinion, the only reason to see this movie is because uh, Shannon Sossman's pretty, and that's pretty much it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for some strange reason, she's the only person in the movie with a southern accent, and it's not even really a great southern accent. Yeah. They they continue, apparently part of their gimmick is not naming this, you know, ex-police officer. They call him Deputy So-and-so. Yeah, in the credits, yeah. Yeah, and then in this one, he's called what? Like I don't know. It's it's ex deputy so and so. Yeah, because one. he got fired. It's it's just retarded. I liked him in the first movie, <laughs> but he was almost overused in the first movie. And to to make him such a big character in this one, it was a mistake. Yeah, I agree with that. And he's a little bit comedic in this movie, which which yeah. I am not open to really in horror films. And the biggest problem I have with this movie, I, you know, I, I enjoyed the fact in the first one that uh, Vincent D'Onofrio had a cameo as the professor and laid out pretty clearly, you know, what was going on with this, uh, the origin of uh, the, what's his name? Bagul. Bagul. A.K.A. And, MJ. Just kidding. I'm just messing with you. Dude. <laughs> anyway. Sorry, uh, everybody. Yeah. So he he makes it pretty clear in the first movie, but now 
the deputy has to go back simply simply so that they can have this hook to to solve their entire problem. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. He the Vincent D'Onofrio character has apparently disappeared, but he left something behind <laughs> that we can't talk about it on the telephone for some reason. I have no idea uh, why, <laughs> right. but he's got to go over to the school, which is really only done so we can see what this thing is. Yeah. And it's, can I, can I say what it is? Go ahead. Because I honestly, listeners out there, I don't think it's that big a deal. I don't think it's that major of a point. So go it ahead. It is though. Uh, to me it's not, but All right. If well, you think it is, then maybe we shouldn't say it. If you think it's a big deal. I tell you what, if you if you don't want to hear it, it's going to take me about a minute and a half to say how stupid this is. So okay. skip ahead on your podcast. Okay. The go thing for it. the thing that he goes to see is a ham radio that has been brought over from Norway that has this recording that it sends out because I guess in Norway they don't have video cameras. So all the families have, have had these, these broadcasts go out over the years on this ham radio. Well, he goes to look at it and tells them to get rid of it or whatever. And it's, it, it's the hook for the next movie, so to speak. It's mm-hmm. like it pops up at the very end. Like it materializes in a room, you know, how many miles away absolutely makes no sense i mean it's a stupid idea to begin with yeah that's what i'm saying i don't think it's that significant and then you know to try to hook an entire movie are we really gonna have a horror movie based on a ham radio well i mean seriously is that the best you can come up with well we did have a sci-fi crime movie based on a ham radio called frequency which was quite good I don't think this this movie, this third installment, if it's based around that, is going to be good. But I do like Frequency from 2000. I can't bring that to mind. Anyway, yeah, it's got Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel in it. And the dad and his son connect 30 years apart through the ham radio. Oh, that sounds cheesy, like Steven Spielberg cheesy. It sounds cheesy, but it's actually quite good. So, not horror but I definitely recommend it. So anyways, <laughs> so, I don't know if they, if they make a sinister three, which I think is really unlikely and they base it on this premise, I think it's pretty much going to be white noise, which uh, yeah. was only good for one movie. And then, you know, they ran that into the ground too. Yeah. With white noise too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I really do. Well, I'm, I'm so I'm pulling up uh, box office mojo here. And it looks like it did eighteen and a half million. Eighteen point five million. And it was in nearly three thousand theaters. So I don't know. This was a decent this would have been a big release for them. This was the first movie out from uh Gramercy, I think. Wasn't it Gramercy? That they uh I think the studio is Focus, is that what you're talking about? No, Focus resurrected another imprint to bring this movie out. They they made an imprint for their uh, action and horror and thriller movies. I saw it on Wikipedia today when I was looking at it. Mm, okay. And uh, this was their their first release on this imprint. And uh, it was it was something of an older name. But well, for, 
for this to be their flagship movie, it's really depressing because, uh, you know, this, I think this would have been a, a big push for them. I don't watch TV with commercials, so I don't, I went into this completely blind. I hadn't seen a trailer. You know, I don't know what they, how they tried to lure people to the theater, but it just, I don't know. I, this would have been pushing it for a direct DVD, in my opinion. Mm. I think you're a little bit hard on it, but I can understand. I, honestly, why Jay, I'm serious, man. <laughs> I was like, there was like one jump scare that got me, and then the one at the end got me because I couldn't believe that they were going to do it again, like they did at the last <laughs> movie. So I jumped on that just just because I thought, surely that's not going to happen. But other than that, I was so completely flat. Like I didn't, I wasn't miserable hating this movie through the the entire thing, but right. there was like. Nothing to get my heart racing or, or pique my curiosity. It was like complete flatline through the entire movie. I will say it is it is largely unremarkable. I mean, there's not a lot about it that's memorable except for the church kill scene. But as you said, it's been done before. That's true. But it's still disturbing nonetheless. Now, I do fear, One Sick Puppy, we're going to see a third sinister because, I don't think there's any way we're going to get a third. Well, check one. this out. Here's the thing: the production budget was 10 million, and it made 18.5. So people like this character. They like the Bagul character, and I, I do think it's a good character. I could see this coming back around again. Nah, I don't think so. I think this one tanked, and they're they're not going to do it. Hmm. Well, I mean, you you got to consider DVD and Blu-ray sales and rental sales. I think and it's and VOD. I think it's, you know, it's already made back its money and it's got a profit. So I don't know. I bet you within two months this is on Netflix. You think so? Yeah, this will go to Netflix really quick. Okay. Just Maybe. so they'll try to get the numbers up. Maybe. And I don't know. If it does well, you know, in aftermarket, maybe. But I, re I really don't think they're going to make another one. From what aspect are you going to tell the story this time? Well, I, I I fear that it's like you said, it'll probably come from that angle of that that seed yeah, that they planted, but it'll be a mistake, I think. So see so massa worm, see Robert Cargill if you're listening to this podcast. Come on, brother. Get rid of the ghost kids. Don't do the radio thing. Let's get back to basics like you had in the first film. Get us get us somebody strong in there like like our boy from the first Owen one. Owen Wilson. No, 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 no. Oh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan okay. Hawke. Thank you, funny guy. Like, it's right. Yeah. yeah, get us somebody like that and uh, bring it. Bring it again. So, One Sick Puppy, your final thoughts and your rating and recommendation for Sinister 2. I just, I really think this is a bad movie. And it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily, <laughs> I just, I, I really can't give you a, I've, just like two strokes of a pencil and Shana Sossman's face. That's that's all this movie's got going for it. The, the kids are not scary. The, you know, the deaths, the the snuff films that they show are not scary. They're not. Uh, they're not really even half of them aren't plausible deaths. I mean, there's no way that some of that stuff was going on, and it was just, just nothing. I, this movie's got nothing going for it. That's just the way it is. And I don't know. Just, I would give it like a, a one. No, what was that other movie I gave a one? That was, 
Now I gave something a, a half a point, I think, on, on your show one time. Yeah, it was worse I think I than twisted this. Your shirt, twisted your arm and, and made you let me. But uh, uh, No, half point's legal. That's legal. Yeah, I'll give this a one and a half just to preserve however much that other movie sucked. But <laughs> this is a really bad movie. Just watch Sinister and leave Sinister 2 alone. And, uh, you know, I, I could make a much stronger case if we were not trying to preserve the the plot for for you guys but mm-hmm. i you know if this were my show i would as a public service i would spoil this movie all the hell i'm back just because <laughs> you should not watch it ever oh uh, man it's wretched and if you're if you're a little guy from from whatever is listening you should be ashamed to put your name on this movie oh harsh harsh and i i don't know that uh see robert cargill as a little guy i don't know but um anyways <laughs> Well, if you're the big cheese, then he's your little buddy. So. Well, here's the thing. I'm I'm no big cheese at all, but I will say I do like the Sinister franchise. I, I don't love this second film. It is a disappointment. It's definitely a step down from the first one. The first one's like a 7.5. I really love it. It's truly disturbing. And I like that they're doing something different in that. And, and maybe One Sick Puppy, that's why I'm so lenient on this particular film, because... I mean, at least it wasn't the gallows or or something like that, again, where it's the same exact ghost movie conventions and tropes. I mean, this is a ghost movie, too, for heaven's sake, but it's not exactly like all the others. You've got a, a good monster character. The kids are dumb, as I said, but the performances are okay, and they tried to write a story. I mean, the story... At least they try to have a story in this horror film. See, I I disagree with you. They didn't try to write a story. They tried to write a sequel. That's the problem with this movie. Well, yeah. I mean, I think they tried to embellish. They had to go farther into the Bagul lore, and and they tried to build a story around that. Now, is it successful? No, I don't think it is. But um, I think it's a lot better than so many other things we're seeing out there, like Unfriended. Or the gallows. I mean, stuff like that. I'm like, oh my goodness. So, honestly, I mean, I, I I wasn't having a blast in the theater. But it was like, I was just like... Because for me, the midpoint, I know this sounds really dumb. <laughs> and I've tried to explain this before. People think this is idiotic. But even though we have a 10 scale, a middle of the road movie for me is a 6. And that's exactly what this is. This is a... This is a six. I just call it a rental. It's kind of flat, as you said, but it's not horrible, I don't think. So that's Sinister 2. And uh, listeners, let us know what you think in the comments uh, for this episode. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Sinister 2. But One Sick Puppy, you got a lot of hardcore horror to be covered over there on Dead as Hell Horror Podcast. So tell the listeners how they can find you and listen to more of your podcasting efforts. You can find us on Twitter at Dead as Hell HP and Facebook as well, facebook.com slash Dead as Hell HP and Dead as Hell.com on the internet, as they call it. And we're on iTunes and Stitcher and all that good stuff. But, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier in the show that we're doing Sharknado 3. That's really only because it's so funny and so bad that we usually do better movies than that. So, uh, <laughs> You say I'm hardcore, and the only thing I've told them I've done so far is, you know, Sharknado 3. That's <laughs> that's pretty bad. But, uh, yeah, I use really strong language, and, and I will save you from seeing horrible movies like this. 
so that's my goal. But uh, Jay has more of a, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like Jay is a higher grade of critic than I am. He's uh, <laughs> he's more cultured. And, You're uh, too kind, brother. You know, but I, I tend to just, you know, call a spade a spade. And <laughs> if I don't like it, I'm going to make it extremely clear. Well, so. and I'll tell the listeners, too, about your show if they've never heard it. And I think this is this is really cool. It's a lot of fun. One Sick Puppy goes in-depth, and um, this is a, a, a huge compliment when I say this. Your style, your reviewing style reminds me a lot of um, my buddy Ron Martin over at The Resurrection of Zombie 7, because you guys will go into a film kind of scene by scene and discuss what happens. You don't go all the way through to the very end, typically, but you talk a lot about the film, and so once you hear a, a Dead as Hell podcast review, you get a really good sense for the film, you know exactly what to expect. And that's something that I admire about your show that you do really well. So yeah, people check out One Sick Puppy over at the Dead as Hell Horror Podcast. I think you'll have a good time. Thanks. All right. And at this point in Horror Movie Podcast, we're going to move into Dr. Shock's special review of Alien Abduction. All right. Um, Alien Abduction is from 2014. It is a found footage movie. And it was during the interview we had done with, with Michael from the found footage uh, website mm-hmm. that um, he had mentioned it. And I know you, you um, Jay, had mentioned, I guess you're going to put the full review because it was it was at a part of the review that hasn't been. Yes, you know, that's exactly published right. Yet. Yeah, because in our found footage themed episode, just for the listeners out there, we only, uh, I guess, released the first portion of that interview that was like an abridged. And so we're going to release the rest of that interview at the the end of this episode that you're currently listening to. And so that's what you're referring to, right, Dr. Shaw? Yes, yes. And it's, it was in a portion um, that was not yet out there, but he had talked about alien abduction and, and he had, you know, he had sort of said some good things about it. And... It, you know, I was like, oh, okay, I, I, it sort of piqued my interest. I thought, okay, I, I'll check that one out. I actually picked up a few of the ones he had mentioned uh, just because I was interested in, in, in seeing, you know, what if, if these were like, uh, seeing how good they were. Okay. Um, and Alien Abduction, I have to say, really sort of blew me away. I mean, it, it uh, nice. I really, really enjoyed this movie. Now, Good because that because that cover art, Doctor Shock. Because I remember when he said it, when the found footage critic said the positive thing, I'm like, really? Like I was, I'm surprised because it looks like a a very like low budget deal. Like some kid said, okay, I'll get out my black magic marker, and make a cover. (laughs) It's almost you know what it almost looks like to me, like one of the old dot matrix printers had done that. Yeah, it does look like the way it goes across, and and you see like it drops out every now and again, and that might have been what he was going for. I can't say for sure. Yeah. Um. But anyway, what one of the things that got me okay, and when you get to the found footage, it opens up and it says these are from the files of the U.S. Air Force. It was, was leaked from the files of the U.S. Air Force. So right away you start thinking, okay. This is a movie called Alien Abduction. Mm-hmm. How exactly would the Air Force have gotten this footage? Right. All right. <laughs> they do sh- ex- show you the very first scene. You get in. They show you how they would have come by this. How they would have. How they would have come by the uh, the footage. And okay, this is going to be sort of a mild spoiler, but not really, because like I said, it's the very first scene. Yeah. And it is a movie called Alien Abduction. 
Right. But so. what happens is we're on what we are we uh, appears to be an alien spaceship. Mm-hmm. You see something in shadows, sort of looking at this camera. You hear noises in the background, and it's looking at this camera. It's looking at this camera, and all of a sudden, it just walks over, opens up a a I don't know, like a door or something. You know, almost like a you know, like if you if you're thinking like in, in if you're looking thinking of a sci-fi where they have sort of a like a uh, what was that in Star Wars where they just sort of released all of their garbage? Oh yeah, <laughs> out. He throws the camera through there, and we see it fall to Earth. We see this thing fall all the way down. Wow. And it was interesting because I did see how um, the director's name is Maddie Beckerman. I saw how they did it. I watched the special features. They used weather balloons that went all the way up to like the edge of space. Oh, really? Yes, they did. And they, they ended up using three of them. And they only ever, they, they put like the, um, what is it, the GoPro cameras, I guess, on those. Yeah. And they sent them all the way up to the edge of space, and they only ever found the one that came down. Two of them they'd never found. They, they don't know if they came down, but they don't know where they went. Wow, so there's a GoPro out there, and in 10 years, it'll do a flyby of Pluto. <laughs> or so. Well, no, I don't. I think they all came down. I just don't think they found two of them. Oh. They just have no idea where two of them came down. Uh, so that will be... lucky and found the third one. So that will be a true found footage event if somebody can find those other two cameras. So, so Dr. Shuck, let me get this straight then. I want to make sure I follow you. If somebody can find the other two, yeah. Yeah, so they attached these cameras and, and they just filmed as the weather balloons went up. And so in order to give that... Um, the appearance of it falling to Earth, they just play the footage backwards, right? Fast motion. Correct. That's amazing. Correct. That's brilliant. Yes. Brilliant. Now, see, that alone makes me respect this movie, and it makes me want to watch it. Right, and it gets you to, the, like, okay, here's how they found it. Now, this is another movie where the camera's running all the time. Okay, and to explain that, they actually did explain that. What it is is the person who's running it is an 11-year-old kid. His name is Riley Morris. And he suffers from autism. Now, from what I I don't know, I don't actually, I'm not familiar with autism enough to, to say, but some doctors have treated children with autism, but had they've like recommended, I guess, giving them a video camera to help them focus. Mm -hmm, that is true. And saying, okay, you know, videotape, go ahead, just videotape everything because it helps them focus. That's the reason why the video camera is running. That, Most of the time. That is a real thing, everybody, because I used to be the producer of the All About Autism podcast, in fact. So, oh, yes. okay. Interesting. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. And the movie is based on a very real phenomenon. It's, it's the brown mountain lights of North Carolina. And the director has seen these. It's like these lights that just sort of appear in the sky and they go in all different directions. And people have been seeing these for years. And at the beginning of the movie, he's talking to experts and so forth, like interviews, sort of black and white sort of interviews of actual people saying, yes, I've seen them. Um, one woman claims, you know, that she was actually lifted up and had an alien encounter and, you know, take that as, you know, as it was, but actual experts who try to explain what these lights are. And that's how the movie opens. And then it gets into the story of this family. It's 11 year old Riley Morris. He has autism and his parents and his older brother and sister, they're going camping in this area, Brown Mountain, North Carolina. And <laughs> no way, no way would I do that. No, no, me neither. <laughs> um, but they're going out, uh, out camping. And what happens is they get, <clears throat> you know, they're out camping and Riley wakes up one night and him and his brother and sister are watching and they see these lights and just one just sort of goes <laughs> and they're just flying in all sort of very strange 
directions. Um, well, the next day, they don't think a lot of it. They tell their parents about it, and they show them the tape. Uh, well, they get into the car, and what they're doing is they're driving um, to the next campsite. They only stayed in one in that site for one night. Now they're going to another campsite. They have the GPS going. Problem is the GPS is leading them all over the place. Hmm. It's not working properly. That my okay? mom, my mom's GPS does that. Oh really? Yeah, she just well, can't. Yeah. She can't follow it properly. That's oh, all. Oh <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, I think yeah, my parents have the same thing too. I'm, I'll never forget my my mother calling up. So we were going over to my friend's house for Christmas, and he had gotten a new house. And she's like, "When are you going to send me the directions?" I go, "You have a GPS." He's like, "Yes, but sometimes I think that takes us the long way." I said, "It doesn't matter. It gets you there. So so go the long way because I'm not going to print out directions. I'm not going to write out directions for you when you have a GPS." But anyway, that's hilarious. Um, get, anyway, write yeah. out the directions. I'll tape it. To my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what are you going to do? You're going to be driving? You're going to be reading these directions that I give you? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> they, they just want you to record your voice, Dr. Shock. You'll be like the Siri. Oh, You'll be yeah, like, oh, yeah. turn well, it left. Even, yeah, it, it wasn't even that. They wanted me to type them out and send them to them. I said, this is the, it's, it's the most pointless exercise in the world. Let me you guess. Said, U.S. mail. They wanted you to do snail mail, no, right? Like, they, didn't want me, they want me to use snail mail. I could have emailed it to them. They've gotten to that point anyway. Hey, wait, but, no, Pony Express. Yeah, even my father's like, oh, are you going to send us a direction? I said, you you both have your own GPS. <laughs> Why would I write out directions for you? It makes zero sense. Uh, I'm not. And I just told him, I said, I'm not doing it. Trust your GPS. Anyway, it, it leads them all over the place into these back mountains. And what happens is, as they're going, the father is getting really annoyed because he now he's running out of gas. Now the gas is getting low because they're driving forever and ever. There's a little bit of a family drama there, but anyway, they, they, they get back in the car, and as they're driving, he comes across abandoned vehicles. And these abandoned vehicles, there's a tunnel that runs under this mountain, and there's just nothing but uh, abandoned vehicles with, like, kids' toys, baby, whole, you know, baby seats, um, CDs sprung on the street. You can tell there was something happened where people were forcibly taken from these cars. This reminds me This reminds me so much of The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, it does a little bit. Yeah, it right. does a little bit. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, this is only this is as far as I think uh, uh, anyway th- they go into this tunnel and this is where the movie really starts to get very interesting. Let's just put it that way. Okay. And from there on it's just this crazy, you know, crazy ride with this with this family. Um, things happen that you're not fully expecting. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the effects for what this was, this was a low budget film. Mm -hmm. The effects were very well handled. Um, like you, and you even get a few of the, you know, I just think of that famous scene from, um, oh, what was that? What was that, um, abduction movie that came out? Where the friends were out. Oh, and, um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Are, are you talking about the one that we love by um, our friend uh, Eduardo Sanchez? The- no, I know what you're thinking. The, you're, the, I know, no, it's not. It's not. Oh, okay. Altered. It's not altered. Are this you- is one from the '90s. The famous, the famous cover. Fire with the in guys, the sky. Fire in the sky. Gotcha. We get, we get some of that for this, and from the way it's handled in this movie, it's actually very good. It's actually handled really, really well, and. This is a this is a, a creepy movie, and there are jump scares in it that are not the you know the cheat type of jump scares as I, as I refer to them sometimes. They're genuine, and by the once it's over, you realize that you just had like a really fun time 
watching this movie. Nice. And that's what, and that was how I felt. I mean, I was like really sort of blown away by it. Wow. I love yeah. hearing that. Now, did you see, uh, I'm trying to get a comparison here. Did you see that movie Extraterrestrial from 2014? No, I have not. And I actually, I think I might even, I think I might even own that. I don't, uh, I did not see that. Okay. Cause I'd like, a, I did not see that, hmm. but I know there have been a few of these type of movies recently. Like I know area 51. Yeah. Was it area 51? I think, I think it was area 51 that came out. Right. Um, I didn't hear too much good about that. Right. Um, but, but this it, is one, I, I gotta tell you, I, I was really very pleasantly surprised. Nice. Same thing with extraterrestrial. It, it was really? it was really um, pretty decent too. Even though it used like every single cliched alien movie trope, it was all in there. But it was well done. So that's why I had wondered if you'd seen it, so we could have like a compare and contrast. No, between the no, two. No, I, I, I have not. But um, anyway, this is one I definitely have to give give Michael props for this one because yeah, I had a blast with this, and it was from the, if just from that opening scene. Where you see this thing like fall to earth. Um, well, yeah, I'll watch was... it just to see that because that's incredible. That's that's some serious ingenuity, and I'm yes. genuinely impressed with that. Like that's yeah. you know because you don't really see that. In, no, you in don't. A movie, right? You don't. You don't see that. But yeah, but with a lot of the found footage movies, they don't always take the time to explain how it was found. Right. You know, like Blair Witch does to a point where they talk about how they found these videos and and everything in the woods. Um, but after that, um, you know, it's just sort of like you get like a quick little thing at the beginning, police, police, uh, surveillance, police footage or belongs to the police or belongs to the military or whatever. Yeah. And but this one, it actually takes the time to, to like sort of lay everything out for you. That's uh, great. And, and it yeah, it, it's a it's an it's a very entertaining movie. And you can even hang in there for the credits because there's like a little bit after the uh, once the credits start to roll. There's another added little scene in there. Um, little stinger. It, like, uh, no, I wouldn't say a stinger, but it's more of like a continuation of, okay, here's where it's going next. Um, okay. It's really, it's just, I was very entertained. I was very entertained watching this. And I even brought it back and I showed my kids the scene uh, in the tunnel. And, you know, they jumped at all the right moments and everything. And um, it was funny because right from there we had to go, um, my wife had, uh, uh been away and we had to go pick her up. She was on a trip. We had to pick her up and they were like talking about it the whole time. Mm -hmm. And you know, my, and my, my youngest son was, was kind of nervous. He was afraid he was going to see a light come down from the sky or something, you know, Yeah. but here's what it is. All of this part happens and you'd like this, Jay, it's all during the day. Nice. When they go into that tunnel and everything, it's not night. It is like, it is, midday horror in the daylight baby yep and a lot of and, a, and i'd say a good portion of this movie takes place in in the daylight um with you know with the best scenes take place in the daylight let's put it that way well that's so cool because i believe one of the taglines to alien abduction here is fear the lights which is yes. a neat little thing about alien movies because usually it when you know if you remember childhood fears when you're afraid of a monster you'll want to just turn on the lights well the problem right. with the alien genre is the lights are bad news <laughs> that's right that's that's when you know you got some problems yeah. and they even put like a little thing when whenever there's something close by um there's static you, you see the static on the camera that oh. you don't that you're not always sure that Riley is 
picking up. Yeah, and therefore, you know, like we know, it's like we know something the characters don't know, right? Because Riley is not necessarily making the connection that when sure. this this one thing is happening on the video, that something is nearby and something is about to go down. That serves in the same way, like um, the impact tremors on Jurassic Park or in Jurassic Park Three, the the cell phone ring. You know, you get yes. to this Pavlovian response where every time you hear that cell phone ring, then that means the Spinosaurus Egypticus is coming. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I love stuff like that. Yeah. And it's it's really, uh, yeah, it's, it's I'd pro- I would give it, uh, I'd say an eight. And I would eight. pick this up because I think this is one, even knowing nice. what's going to happen, I think you could still rewatch this one and, and uh, I think you can rewatch it and enjoy it. Eight out of ten, and Doctor Shock says, "Buy Alien Abduction." That's the one from uh, 2014. Yep. And uh, yep. it looks like it was directed by Maddie Mad- Maddie Beckerman. Beckerman, yes. I actually uh, had sent out some tweets about this, just how much I liked it, and he he did actually um, uh, retweet that, saying, "Hey, there's a real good review of uh, Alien Abduction," uh, which I well, I was kind of happy about. Because uh, it was like he was the one who you see him in the special features where he was the one who came up with the whole, you know, the balloon thing. Brilliant. And you just see it take off. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. That's the best way to, to describe it. It's it's a it's a very fun um, and, and it is scary. I mean, it's going to scare you. But when it's over, you really feel like you've had an experience. Oh, good. I, I am sold. I'm totally sold on this. Yeah. I can't wait to watch it, and I'm being genuine. And, yeah, props to director Maddie Beckerman because uh, this was actually his feature film directorial debut. This was his first uh, film. So it sounds like mm-hmm. it's an impressive debut as well. Absolutely. I would say definitely. Okay, so that's Alien Abduction. I want to thank Dr. Shock for that review. And once again, thank Michael, the found footage critic, yeah. for bringing it to our attention. Because he I'll gets, tell you what. He gets the props because I would have never – I would have never – Same. I went out – yeah, I would have – I was actually going out. I picked up a few of the movies during that interview as he was throwing them out there. Um, and and this was just happened to be the first one I, I popped in. And yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. I said, wow, you know, he, he definitely put us on to something good here. Yeah, I saw that sucker and that cover art. I'm like, the poster, I'm like, yeah, nah, no thanks. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> not going to blow. Yeah, the poster's not, the poster's not going to wow you. The poster's not going to, it's not going to really impress you. I agree with you there. Um, but it is, it's basic. But once you, once you see the movie though, yeah. Okay. It's on, it, it's rock and roll. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Dr. Shock. No problem. All right. And at this point in Horror Movie Podcast, episode 69, I'm joined once again by my faithful friend and co-host, the Wolfman, Josh Legary. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Jay. How's it going? Oh, it's good. Thanks. I'm so glad you're here. And uh, we've got great business. But before we get down to that, We've got an exciting guest, a very special guest on this episode, and and Josh, you should have the honors on this. Well, listeners of Movie Streamcast will know her from her excellent reviews of films that she's seen at the gym. Uh, However, (laughs) listeners of Horror Movie Podcast will probably only know her as my wife who will never watch horror movies with me. This is Rachel from Movie Streamcast. Welcome. 
Hello. Thank you so much. Welcome, Rachel. I'm so happy you're here. And just so everybody knows out there, Rachel's still representing because she even has a horror movie podcast t-shirt, y'all. So take that. I do indeed. It was a very kind birthday present. Thank you. <laughs> However, I will say she would not wear it to the movie the other night. I, I tried to get her to wear it to the visit. <laughs> At the last second. I just didn't have advance warning. Yeah. Well, a late a lady's wardrobe. <laughs> didn't match my outfit. There you go. Yes, it's black and white. You have to you have to coordinate <laughs> you really these have things. To coordinate that. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because honestly, on Sinister Two, which we also review in the same episode, um, I wore my shirt for the very first time to that movie. And um, it was super cool to do that. So I felt really excited to do that. But She has worn it around, though. Is yeah. she wearing it right now? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Not actually. <but laughs> I'll just pretend that she is. In spirit. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Rachel, in all seriousness, though, this is a po- probably the most important part of this message, this review right here. On behalf of all of us, and I mean... Me and Dr. Shock, Kyle Bishop, and the entire audience of Horror Movie Podcast, and Josh, I'm sure. We all want to thank you for lending us Josh and and giving him so much time to podcast with us. My wife reminds me all the time of what a sacrifice it is. So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. He loves it, so that's uh, what matters. Are we ready to get down to business on this, Josh? Yeah, let's do this. Okay, well, I've been waiting for... A long time for this. So at this point, we're going to give you our feature review of M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. Every day it's again close. Are you holding my camera properly? Swerve, girl. Uh, Stop, both of you. Hi, Mom. My parents asked if their grandchildren could visit them for a week. Here we are. This is where our mom grew up. I've wanted to spend time with you for so long. Miss you guys. We're having a great time. I have not seen your Nana this happy in years. <laughs> Bedtime here is 9.30. It's probably best you two shouldn't come out of your room after that. See you in the morning. 9.30? 9.30. What is that? It's 10.47. We think there's someone outside the door. Finally, it's been so long. Josh and I, we shared this little text back and forth with each other, and we had the same sentiment. I I didn't, when I texted you earlier on Saturday, Josh, and I said, please go see this so we can review it, I didn't say anything about my feelings because I didn't want you to have any sort of expectation. And when you texted me back and it matched my sentiments, you said, M. Night is back. (laughs) And I totally agree. And I would say, yes, M. Night is back, mostly for me, Okay. at least. I mean, I, I feel really good about this particular movie. We should also mention right up front, this is a Blumhouse production. So, well done on that, Jason Blum. You know, I got to give him credit where credit's due. We got M. Night in the stable there and of course, cranking this out. That's good. And this was... Co-produced, it was written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan himself. And just a quick note to people, Rachel, just to tell you kind of where my wife is coming from on this. The trailer is so good to this and so effective 
that when my wife saw it, she saw the first few minutes of it. It was one of those YouTube things that, that came up, and she hates horror movies. She was convinced that this movie is evil, and she was super mad at me for for <laughs> wanting to go see it. But I'm like, I'm like, Nat, it's M Night Shyamalan, you know? Like, I mean, that's my guy because The Village is my all time favorite film, and so. But she thinks that this movie's just pure evil, just from now, the trailer. Now I had heard you you had told me that, and um, I was trying to convince Rachel to go see it with me, and you know I am in a similar boat as you in terms of getting Rachel to watch a horror movie with me is pretty difficult. She actually does enjoy them when she's watching them. It seems to me, I don't know if she would admit that, mm-hmm. but for instance, we, I got her to watch it follows the other day and we had a blast oh watching. Gosh, it was so scary. <laughs> so I, I think for me, M night Shyamalan was the real kicker that got her to go, but she was asking me, is it scary? And I said, well, I'm like, don't watch the trailer because I think the trailer is scarier than the movie is what I told her because I didn't want her to have the same reaction uh, <laughs> that Natalie had. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, if the listeners have not seen the trailer to this, um, it's actually a really decent trailer and I don't think it gives away too much. I, I will say right up front, this film is built upon that phenomenon where many people think that old people tend to be creepy. And it's kind of the same way that, you know, some people are afraid of clowns. Some people are actually afraid of old people. They find them unsettling. And I was thinking about that. And it's true with me. Clowns and old people. That's right. And if you have an old clown, it's over. (laughs) But it probably has to do with, if I had to theorize on this, our fear of aging and death. Because I think that, you know, in the timeline of a person's life, I think that that it brings you right up to that point because our bodies stop working as well. And it changes our appearance. We start going all (laughs) crypt keeper, no disrespect. (laughs) And then we approach death. And so, um, I I don't know. I I love that that premise right up front. I think that's super cool. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that um, that's really true. And that it speaks to this phenomenon throughout the movie of encountering kind of strangeness or strangers in things that should be familiar and should be, um, we should be connected to and we should love and instead finding them disorienting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I love that. And, and yeah, there's like two facets to that because, um, you know, for the premise of this, these children, the two children that go on this visit at age 19, their mother was estranged from her parents something bad happened we don't know what it is it's one of m night's mysteries for the film but the mother decides that she writes off her parents and she has not seen them in 15 years and which means that these kids have never met their grandparents so the grandparents reach out and invite the children to come and stay with them for a week for a visit so they can get to know their grandchildren so yes rachel that's a good point on one side like you know because most people seem to have a closeness and a real familiarity with their grandparents. But in this case, that's there. But also, you know, their behavior 
is very bizarre, as we see in the trailer. Yeah, it is. But it's it's weird because it's something about the filmmaking process of adding music and knowing that these kids are unfamiliar with these people, the little strange tics that they have that make them scary. I mean, there were two points in the film, um, one involving someone under a bed mm-hmm. and one involving a game of hide-and-seek that yeah. my thought was, these are things I do with my kids all the time. Right. <laughs> but it, within the context of the movie, it's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. Now, with the hide-and-seek, are you referring to the porch? Yeah, under the yes. under the porch. That, to me, is the scariest part of the film, and I'm convinced that nightmares are coming to me on that. <laughs> like <laughs> That flipped me out, you guys. I was actually, no kidding, I'm not exaggerating. I was kind of pushing myself back in my theater chair. I felt myself, like I realized that I was trying to, you know, get away from the film on that porch scene. (laughs) Well, in our last house, the basement, the cellar actually looked like that with the dirt. (laughs) And the, yeah. So if you ever want to relive that moment, you're welcome over to our our rental there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that really... um, Oh, that, that bothers me. And and here's something. Now, tell me if you guys think that this will take away from the film for anybody, because we are later in this review, we will have a, a spoiler section. But this is a good movie, so we don't want to spoil it. But if I were to hear this up front, if I would have heard this thing that I want to say, it would have added to my enjoyment of the film. So if you think this takes away an aspect of the mystery, then tell me and I'll cut it out. But One thing I love about this film is that it is set in the real world. It's not supernatural. It adds up and it makes sense. I mean, I think that is a nice reveal. So I don't know if it, I don't know if it would take away, but I I think it was something I was wondering about the whole time I was watching the film, particularly during a couple of the later interviews. Yes. Yeah. Cause I was cringing and that's why I say it would, it would actually have added to my enjoyment of the film to know about that because I was cringing and I was thinking, okay, don't M night, don't go off the deep end, don't go off the deep end, you know? And I'm like, he's going to go off the deep end. I was so worried. And then when it's, when it's grounded in reality, that made it so much greater for me. But if you, yeah, I don't know. What do you think? What, what's your verdict? I mean, it's a good point. I, I would like to talk about that more when we get to spoilers because I have a lot to say on that. And it reminds me of some of the things we discussed with the taking of Deborah Logan. And this to me yes. solved a lot of the problems I had with that film. Nice. Okay. Um, one thing I do want to say is, did you mention this is found footage? Not yet. Okay. So that's one thing I really wanted to talk about because you've got your main character. Your main characters really are these children and, um, Becca, the young girl is kind of the lead and she's this young filmmaker making a documentary about her mom. And this estrangement that you discussed with between the mother and the grandparents and, so she is taking that found footage documentary filmmaker role, and I have to congratulate her <laughs> and probably more M. Night on, I think, handling that better than I've ever seen. I was extremely impressed with you know all the complaints that I had during our found footage uh, episode where we talked about the found footage format. Mm. This, to me, had none of those problems. Nice. Hold it off expertly, in my opinion. Yeah, because um, yeah, it has that documentary premise where the um, the elder of the two, right, the granddaughter, is making a film. And- They're also they do this thing where um, 
you know, found footage films are often known for the shaky cam. These cameras are mostly on tripods. Mm-hmm. They're mostly fixed. And it's a it's kind of off setting because you're used to the handheld and it feels, I don't know, it grounded it for me quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it also allows the shots to be very composed. I, I just thought he did such a great job with always feeling like these characters are shooting this footage, which is one of my big gripes with the found footage uh, format. Which also, I think, makes it more creepy because I think at the heart of the creepiness of this film is this feeling that we all remember of being children and being in situations where we're powerless and where maybe we feel like something's slightly off, but the adults we're with, you know, aren't aren't on board or aren't seeing the same things that we are. Mm-hmm. And I think with there not being sort of an omniscient camera, it feels even more isolated. Like these kids are really on their own. You know, they're even shooting the thing that's showing us into this world. <laughs> I love everything you just said. And let me tell you why, because you're right on the money. Just, this is weird, but but I'll come back around. Just last night, I had the experience of what you're talking about with my little seven-year-old and my four-year-old because my wife and I went down to the basement and we saw that there was some kind of mysterious leak that was leaking and we have some carpet down there and it was very unfortunate. So my wife and I are ticked and sad and bummed out about this water problem we have to deal with in our basement. Well, our kids are picking up on this, right? But they're kind of misreading how we're feeling because they just know that there's this mysterious thing happening in the basement and mom and dad seem really troubled. And so they got freaked out, like kind of weirded out by it. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, and I had took this, like it reminded me of horror movie podcasts where I was like analyzing fear for my seven year old and trying to explain, (laughs) I actually tried to explain why he was feeling fear by misreading our emotions and stuff. And my wife just looked at me like I was nuts, but but I, I was trying to explain it. And it's so interesting because it reminds me of what you said about how little kids, sometimes we feel powerless when the adults aren't seeing what the kids are. Now, this, so this would be an amazing premise for a film other than at the end, because you're pulling the rug out from underneath your audience, everyone would uh, hate you for it. It's kind of like the, uh, it was all a dream at the end kind of a thing, but what a great um that's a great premise, Jay. I'd no. keep that under your hat. Oh, okay. You got it. <laughs> That's right. So, Rachel, how do you feel about uh, found footage, though, generally speaking? Are you usually against that convention, or do you like it? No, I'm not against it. Um, I think that sometimes it can be distracting, or it, it feels more gimmicky, rather than, um, in this case, I felt like it actually helped build the narrative and not only was there a logical reason for it and I agree that it was well executed but I felt like there was actually a narrative function that it was contributing to yeah I was a little wary at the beginning with the interview with the mom I was just like well this isn't starting off too well for me and um (laughs) but by about 20 minutes into the movie I was really excited about their use of the convention and I thought that they were just doing a phenomenal job with it. Yeah. And as you said, I want to reiterate, cause I was telling Carl this on movie podcast weekly, just a little bit ago that the, yeah, the found footage, it isn't too shaky and that's nice, but I will say, I think it's a brave move for M night Shyamalan with, with how much 
like persecution he's received over his films. It was very brave for him to go the found footage route with this movie because of how many people don't like that in the first place. Firefighters are brave, Jay. That that's right. That, <laughs> this yes. was a, this was bold. Yeah, it was it was bold and um, maybe a little risky, but yeah, definitely risky. I mean, I think I think I mean you said you kind of teased he's almost back or he's back a little bit, and for me, I think honestly, this is one of my favorite films of M Night Shyamalan's. It's hard; you can never quite compare it because of the fan footage convention. I think it becomes impossible to compare with something like the sixth sense or for me, you know, and you we're both fans of the village. Mm-hmm. Those films are so well composed. So well shot the production values, the production design, the costuming, the sets and the, the world that is constructed is so rich that this film can never live up to that standard being, you know, shot in the style that it is. But having said that, I think on pure entertainment value, this might be my third favorite film of his it's up there wow yeah yeah it's definitely very effective now where where would it rank so far rachel just as a teaser for your you know for your final thoughts that like is this one of your um favorite m night films yeah yeah i think it definitely was nice i'm so happy to hear this now see i think one thing i don't know what your theater experience was like but um i saw it the same day you guys did but i saw it on saturday at like two o'clock in the afternoon, I went to one of our more popular movie theaters here. And guys, this was a Saturday opening weekend. And the parking lot, just generally speaking, the parking lot was just about empty. It was amazing. It was kind of a ghost town. And then when I got inside, they had this playing in one of the bigger theaters, like like just gigantic, huge theater. And there were only like 12 people there. And it just it just told me that, yeah, I think, People have lost faith in Shyamalan, and I don't think a lot of people were risking it. How was your turnout? The opposite. It was totally packed. Oh, good. Okay. And people were jumping off the walls, bouncing off the walls. There was a lot of talking to the screen and yelling at the screen. There was screaming (laughs) and like hysterical laughing throughout the film. Nice, nice. And I heard there were a lot of teenagers in our audience, and I rarely go to a movie on a Friday night or Saturday night. Like I, I just avoid the theater on those days. And um, it was interesting watching a movie with that type of audience because it's rare that I do. And I was taking note of some of their comments on the way out of the theater, just these intense debates of whether or not it was scary or hilarious. Right. And um, I heard some kids say, well, scary movies aren't even scary these days. This is, this is just creepy. There was only one part that got me, but pretty much everyone else was losing their minds during this movie. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about that because this is billed on um, IMDb. It's listed as a comedy horror. I totally disagree with that. I call it a mild horror film with comedic elements. I mean, one character, the younger brother is, very comical. He's actually hilarious, but it's kind of peppered throughout the film. It's not like what we've been talking about with Scream. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't. If I w- if I were forced to call this something along those lines, I'd call it a horror comedy, not comedy horror. But I think it's just comedic elements. What do you guys say? Yeah, I don't. I don't feel like it's a comedy, but there is a lot of comedy in it. It's just not related at all to the horror. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talked about comedy horror 
actually undercutting the horror with comedy. Right. And then something like Scream, where the laughs are built into the scares. This is almost just like it has comedy peppered throughout. And it's just kind of to give you the personality of these kids more. Well, I I feel like it is strategically placed, though, because I feel like there's a lot of scary moments that build to almost just to very tense moments um, with, and then they sort of dissipate without a clear resolution. And so I feel like the comedy often comes in after one of those points and sort of resets you so that you can again, build to that point. Mm-hmm. As you're saying that I'm thinking of a lot of scenes that contradict what I just said um, toward the end of the, hide and seek scene there's like a big comedy beat that just seems kind of weird and out of place yeah Uh, but it's so odd that it's a little unsettling unsettling. yeah 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 and the same goes for scenes uh, revolving around the oven they're totally odd and unsettling but i mean we were i was cracking up and so was everyone else in the theater but it was a very nervous laughter i think a lot of it (laughs) just like ah I can't believe this is happening right now. Like there's yes. a lot of that in the theater overall in terms of horror, it's kind of mild, Yeah, you know, by horror fans uh, definition, you know, it's not gory. It's not overly uh, disturbing, but it is super creepy, very suspenseful, very scary, mm-hmm. lots of thrills and, and jump moments that are not cheap jump moments. Like they're very well yeah. constructed jump moments. And it's a super creepy movie, but just, but it's kind of fun. I think it's perfect. It's like a great gateway drug to get someone interested in horror because it's not too terrifying that you couldn't show it to a 13 year old. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something that still, even as adults, we were totally freaking out during the movie. Yeah. Rachel, what do you say as far as the the scare factor to this movie? Yeah, I agree. Um, As Josh has said, I'm not a huge fan of (laughs) super scary movies. Um, And this was perfect for me. It actually got a little scarier than I, at the end, than I had anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't something that, you know, stayed with me all night and, and was disturbing or anything like that. It was more a fun, creepy that definitely um, got me talking to the screen as well. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel differently about, you know, a visit to grandma's house right now, though? Like having seen this, would that be something that would make you a little bit, I don't know, think about this movie at least? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have grandparents that live in isolated rural Oregon and (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of glad I'm not, I'm not visiting anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) One of my earliest scary movie moments. um, I I remember seeing the movie dreamscape with my older cousins and I don't, I still to this day have not revisited it because it scared the crap out of me so much. (laughs) But I remember there's some scene where there are aliens who tear their faces off and they're aliens underneath or something to this effect. Yeah. And I was staying with my grandparents for the summer and I just remember being so scared to go up for dinner. Like they were calling me up to dinner and I remember like very stealthily climbing up the stairs up from the basement and like peeking at them down the hallway and just terrified that they were going to rip their heads off and be aliens underneath. (laughs) And I think if I had seen this at a younger age, this would definitely have that effect, but that, not for me really now. Yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, if you show this to a, 
a young kid, I mean, there might be issues then with the grandparents. This is a great sleepover film. You know, if I was a kid, if I was with my buddies and like fifth grade this would be the ultimate movie to watch i think but not if you're sleeping over at your grandparents house. <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah watch it our, our kids grandparents babysit them a lot so let's you know oh here. yeah you should <laughs> oh my goodness that'd blow your built-in babysitter situation no, but i think i mean i think i kind of said this before but i think one of the things that makes it so scary is you know, elements that could happen to any of our grandparents and and probably have is just that role reversal. And there's some things that you learn about them early on in the film where they are becoming more like children, you know, and there's, they need to be taken care of. And I think when you're a child, that can feel really disturbing to have your caretakers need care. Yes. Although I will say the daughter handles it so well. I was telling Rachel, I've been in a hundred documentary interview situations and this girl handles it so much better than I would have multiple times in the film when her interview subject seems to be losing it. And she just is very adept at kind of adjusting to that and nice continuing as an interviewer. Just made me appreciate her as a documentary filmmaker. I'm like, she's good. Josh, aren't you supposed to just not say anything and let them keep squirming on camera? <laughs> if you're trying to exploit them, yes. That's what you did to me when you interviewed me for a clean <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just messing. No, uh, Rachel, once again, I loved what you said because I think M. Night took that role reversal, like that weirdness of seeing them become childlike, and then blended it with this un- uncanny and odd behavior because this is a really neat horror element to me or a horror convention. When people are doing something that people typically never do, then it becomes alarming to us. And I think he capitalizes on these kind of behaviors. And it kind of sounds dumb saying it out loud, but when you see it in the film, it's effective. Like the grandmother, for instance, she acts more like a creature, like more like an animal sometimes than a human. And that's really eerie and upsetting to me when I see it. Yeah. And, you know, but even I think just the normal things associated with aging and the way they do ground this film in those ways, um, I thought was super effective and I was really appreciating as a viewer. Nice. And there are also ways in which they make, he makes the everyday world um, seem dangerous and scary to the children. And again, this is grounded in a relationship. I mean, at the core of this movie, I think the scariest part of it in some ways is these broken relationships. Um, that's kind of what's underlying everything. Um, and But you have the kids, and I, I don't think this is spoiling much. You learn early on that the brother, since his father has abandoned the family, um, is very germaphobic. And so you kind of have this whole nice, you know... Um, background to everything where he's he's literally afraid of like most surfaces you know on a very visceral level and later on in the film um and this is revealed a little more dramatically so i won't get into the specifics of what the sister is afraid of but it's again it's a very common everyday type of thing um that again has been rendered frightening or something she would want to avoid because of the association that she has with this this broken relationship. Mm-hmm. Excellent insight. And as someone who I grew up, you know, with a single parent, 
I think one of those other things that we're, we're talking about of about children kind of being disturbed um, by just kind of the lack of control that they have over a situation. I think the mom in this movie is also another interesting example of her distance from them, not only physically, but also just kind of she's living her own life and they're kind of having to deal with that themselves. That felt very familiar to me as a, as an only child and as a, only child of a, of a single parent. I just, I re, like that. I could relate to their kind of um, the kind of scariness of that too, of just feeling like, well, it's up to you to kind of figure this stuff out, you know? Yeah. Well, and she, and that's set up very explicitly in her initial interview um, where you get the sense that like, and I don't know if this is true of many single parents, but I know that single mothers in particular are often portrayed this way in film as being just sort of best friends with their kids, very open. Um, you know, I think in the car, she talks to them about dating and whatever. And, and so you just get the sense that she shares everything. And then in that initial interview, when her daughter asks her why she initially left her parents' house 15 years ago, she just says, I, I did something and I choose to not tell you what it was. And so it's a pretty dramatic shift. And it, I think it sets the tone early on for you're going to be on your own in this situation, you know, to see what information you can glean, to see if anyone else is going to be more forthcoming than I am to kind of solve this. Mm-hmm. And you, it really adds a factor of danger for the children, like in some of those interview situations where um, the the girl, uh, Becca's interviewing the grandparents, it, there's an immediate tension around these topics. And you, because you don't know what happened, it's scary and you're, you fear for her based on the grandparents' reactions to some of these things. And you also, you're not sure who to fear exactly. Like you're not (laughs) sure if the grandparents are victims or if they were perpetrated, like you don't know. So there's also this tension with the mom that she is no longer quite a safe, safe haven either because these people are obviously damaged in some way. And you, you wonder to what extent was this mom kind of a monster that created this situation? You know, it sort of Absolutely. takes away all of the the mm-hmm. possible safety. There's a great scene where they kind of reach out to the mom for assistance and her reaction just had me on the edge of my seat as to what is she going to say? What is she going to do? Is she not going to help them? Is she involved in some scheme? Like I just didn't know what was going to happen. She was a really unsafe character um, as their only guardian kind of in the film yeah i totally agree in fact that's one of the most powerful aspects of the film is just the way that m night Shyamalan gets us to ask throughout the entire film what what happened here with this mom what did she do or what was done to her like why do we have this situation i love that i think there will be some people who want to characterize this as a kiddie film because it stars children in the main role because it's PG-13, but I think if we also think about Kyle's definition of horror and think about this being a serious film because these children are in such peril, it actually adds to the seriousness of this um, and the weight that all of these um, events have on oh. both the audience, the characters, and and the film. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I'll just I'll move right into that now because that's one thing I was going to say. This is rated PG-13. And even though I think I would classify this as we've said, this is a mild horror film, but still, 
Um, and even though there's not much imagery that we talked about that's overly explicit, but when Rachel you, thought there was, well, yeah, well, that's true. But I, I guess in terms of like, if you look at like Saw or Hostel, right? There's not right. like, <laughs> like, you know, not like, yeah. <laughs> like crazy over the top stuff, but, but yeah, but I still think this should have been rated R to be honest, because anytime you have like, you know, violence toward children or children committing violence or anything along those lines. And even the sound effects in this at one point, take it to the point you're like, Oh my goodness. How is this PG 13? Like, I I seriously think this film should be rated R. I think I agree with that. I wouldn't want my 14 year old. I mean, if the ring is rated PG 13, this is less scary than the ring. I would say. True, but okay, I think well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, the ring should have been rated R too. If if the orphanage is rated R, then the ring should be rated R, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Although I think the orphanage is scarier, but yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Now, did you guys feel just a little nitpick here? For me, the kids are almost too smart. They're almost too precocious and too insightful about the world. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I know kids are bright these days especially with the internet and all that stuff but i don't know the kids almost seem a little too intelligent for their age i struggled with it a couple times but ultimately i I enjoyed that about their characters i I, there were a couple moments in the film like singular moments where i thought really and but you know the film did have to win me over as much as i am a fan of knight i have been very disappointed by a lot of his work as well and so i you know, I was rooting for him, but I was cautiously optimistic. And so I, I don't know. I, there were moments, many moments along the way where I was just like, nah, nah. but ultimately the film, I think, totally succeeds on all mm-hmm. the things that I had problems with. And the boy is a rapper, but I will say he still can't <laughs> rap like Jay of the Dead. I'm just well, saying. Well, I was going to say, did you relate to him? Because I think he's a Jay of the Dead style rapper. The, the, the thing is, he's okay. You know, I think he's okay, but. You know, he's got he's got some development. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the book, The Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And I saw this kid in the movie version of that and was very disappointed um, with his performance in that movie. I mean, it's it's a lot to carry for a young actor um, as much as he does. But I thought he was great in this. And Mm -hmm. so I thought it was good to see some evolution in this young actor. Totally. Um, I'll just say quickly, I, I, it did kind of bother me about the kids, but I, I sort of just felt that they were stylized and that that was a choice that I, I ultimately ended up being okay with. It sort of felt like watching The West Wing or something where you have Aaron Sorkin's dialogue, totally unrealistic. No one's ever going to say this, but it's so fun to watch. And it's it's making some interesting commentaries on, you know, when she talks about the filmmaking, it's making some interesting commentaries on the film itself that you're watching and and the relationships and things. And so I think ultimately it did work, even if it wasn't super realistic. I got you. Yeah, I mean, I I eventually went with them because they are pretty likable, especially the boy. I think he's his humor is is just really great to me. I like the girl better, actually. Oh, do you? Okay. Well, um, another thing I wanted to point out is just that it seems like M. Night Shyamalan has been, I don't know if he was like reading into like the definition of horror or anything, but he even incorporated a couple of elements. I mean, there are a couple of instances 
that involve like grossness, which I think is super cool that he did that in this film because some of, you know, one aspect of horror is that it's not just scary, but it's also repulsive and it repels us. And I think he incorporated some grossness here and there in the film as well. And I think that's effective. I was not a fan of that, actually. And that's something I'd like to get into a little bit more in spoilers. But OK, yeah. And I'm not talking about the the one that like paid off later. I'm, I'm, I'm really talking about the initial scene with the grandma that like the first night. I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm like, yeah. So you get that, too. But um, I, I t- as far as setup and payoff, though, he is like really into doing this where you see things earlier in the film and then pay them off later. And when, when, when I say he's back mostly, I think maybe that's not accurate. Maybe he's all the way back because he's doing things that we've seen him do before, but he's done it better in the past. Like, for example, do you remember in Signs when there were a lot of character traits or foibles or weaknesses or strengths that we learn about that end up coming back later in the film to pay off? You know, it served them one way or another. Like, for example, like Bo's tendency to leave water everywhere to me those are the those are what make signs fall short of being a great film right yeah and and i think that is done better in that than in lady in the water it's egregious in lady in the water it's awful the way that is and i call these like m night Shyamalan's slumdog traits you know because (laughs) slumdog millionaire is the best example of a film that uses this effectively i think where where a character's experience or whatever ends up serving that character. Yes. Yeah. But with this, you know, it really felt once again not as bad as Lady in the Water, but it still felt kind of shoehorned in. It's like it's like stop trying to incorporate all these little things into your screenplay. You don't need all that stuff. In this film you felt that way? Yeah, like there are so many little things about these characters that he tries to like pay off later or, or you know, try to plug them into the the payoff of, you know, the I, I did not notice it, and I found signs intolerable the first time I watched signs. Like I couldn't even, I hated it after my first viewing, and that hurts my feelings. I, I, I it's <laughs> it's grown on me, but I don't think this was a great. I don't think this was a problem at all for me. No, I but I notice it with him because I'm a huge. You're I, sensitive. I, I watch him like well, I watch him like a hawk. I'm a huge fan, and so I I know his moves, and that's one of his moves big time. But Lady in the Water, like the guy with the big arm, you know, yeah, the huge well, arm. That Lady in the Water is bad, but this no, no, no. I I know, but I'm it's not as bad as that. But I'm just saying, I wish he would drop that and stop trying to do that. If the kids rapping had played into some important element of the film, that would have been along the lines of Lady in the Water. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Well said. One other thing before we um, move into our ratings, uh, I was wanted to say, I love the fact that this film, you know, the premise is that it's being filmed as a documentary. And indeed, it is a documentary of sorts. And like at one point... I love how she talks about making this ironic movie music choice for the soundtrack. And then it is, in fact, implemented later in this film proper. And I'm like, oh, that's very cool. They remembered to do that and keep up the conceit that this is a found footage film. Yeah, that was really cool. Admire that. So um, anything else you want to say before we do ratings and then spoiler section? 
Um, just one quick thing. I really enjoyed a couple of moments in the film that, again, were taking things like uh, Josh mentioned the the scenes surrounding the oven. Um, there's a scene where, which was, you know, kind of Hansel and Gretelish, and then there was a scene mm-hmm. with um, where, you know, a person in a sheet, just sort of the iconic, very worn out ghost costume um, <laughs> becomes terrifying. And so again, I just, I liked these elements of childhood that were worked in and made scary for adults. I thought that was cool. Yes. I just wanted to talk about the cast a little bit more. I just wanted to give props to Livia DeYoung. I thought she was amazing. And I thought the other uh, Ed Oxenbold was also good, but you know, we gave a lot of, um, we, we celebrated Jill Larson's performance in the taking of Deborah Logan. And while I don't think she's necessarily outdone here, I think her performance is incredible in that film. I would say that Deanna Dunnigan does an incredible job as an elderly woman in this film. I mean, she's great. She's really, really strong. She brings it hard. And I liked the guy that played Pop Pop as well, Peter McRobbie. I thought he was good too. Yeah, extremely well done. I I agree, hundred percent. And even the mom is convincing in her role. Yeah, yeah Catherine Han is an amazing actress who usually does comedy, and so it was interesting to see her in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. Okay, well, let's move into our uh, rating. So, just so the listeners know what we're doing here, we're going to rate the film. For those who have not seen it, and give our final thoughts, non-spoilers. And then after we're done with the ratings, trust us on this. I I mean, well, Josh, Josh doesn't think it's that big a deal, actually, from what I gather, <laughs> whether you hear the spoilers or not. But I would recommend not hearing, hearing the spoiler section before seeing the film, obviously. But no, I, w- I would recommend that as well. I just don't okay. think that the twist... Um, the twist is actually my least favorite part of the film, and I don't think it will impact your enjoyment of the film if you know what the twist is. But I think there are other spoilers that we may discuss that would impact your enjoyment of the film. That's right. Yeah. So before we get to the spoilers, let's go into the ratings and let's kick it off with The Wolfman, Josh Legary. What do you say? What do you rate this? Well, I talk about Halloween films, and as a horror fan, uh, we don't like to distinguish these things, but. As someone who deals with non-horror fans on a regular basis, I'm always trying to get people to watch scary movies during the month of October. <laughs> but you can't go full scary. You kind of have to you have to watch films that can be watched in mixed company, I guess. I think a good Halloween movie is one that everyone can enjoy, that you can watch with a big group of people and have a great time watching it. You don't watch you know, martyrs with a bunch of people on a, at a Halloween party. Right. And so I think um, The Visit is a great Halloween movie for me. It's a kind of film you could watch with family or friends and just have a blast watching, laugh and scream and just have a great time with. Um, I really enjoyed it. I can't think of anything to take points off for. I don't know why I would give this a 10 necessarily, but I honestly, I can't, there are no detractors for me other than maybe I wish it had just been a little bit scarier. Like I wish it had just been a little bit more intense. I think it could have been a great horror film, you know, instead of a horror light film. I think it could have been an amazing horror film if it had just been a titch bit scarier. And I didn't love the very, very ending, which we'll talk about in spoilers. So I'm going to give this, I guess, with that a 9.5. 
Wow. I'm going to say see it in the theater and buy it. Nice. Okay. That's that's exciting. Okay, what do you say, uh, Wolf Lady Rachel? <laughs> oh. She wolf. I want to be a wolf. She, 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 she wolf. She wolf Rachel. Um, no, I feel similarly. I think this would be a movie that would be fun to share with people. I think. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Can we call her Rachel? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Rachel. That's something, I, that's something I love to call her that she'll never let me call her. So this is the perfect. <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity on the horror podcast to call her Rachel. That makes me uncomfortable to hear you call your wife Rachel. <laughs> like, makes her uncomfortable too, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think that this would be a fun movie to share with people. It would be a fun movie to watch again. Um, for me, it was just the right amount of scary. I think if it was a little more scary, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much. Um, but I I do like his movies, and I think this is definitely one of the best. And I would give it a nine and recommend seeing it in theaters as well. All right. And is this a buy after it's out of theaters? Do you tell people to buy it or just rent it? Um, I think this would be a buy because I, I, I don't love rewatching movies, but I could see myself rewatching this one. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And for the listeners who aren't aware, Rachel is an avid reader. So she spends her time wisely reading books <laughs> instead of watching movies like we do, huh, Josh? <laughs> You call it wise if you like, but... Uh. <laughs> Josh is a reader, too, though, so I can't even mess with him on that. All right. Here's the J of the Dead rating. This is a 7 out of 10 for me. <laughs> and, and really, that's a good rating. I promise it is. But it's just like, there are things that, that bug me about this for certain. But I thought it was very effective. I'm very encouraged. I'm happy for M. Night Shyamalan. I, I say see it in the theater strictly just because... I think it would be fun to see it with a theater audience because it is a pretty good time in the theater. But moreover, I want to I want to support M. Night Shyamalan because I'm worried about his box office numbers. And I think this is worthy of being supported that way. Otherwise, I would call it a solid rental. But I just want the horror fans to know this is a mild horror movie, even so. Okay. So at this point, we're going to move into spoilers. This is full-blown spoilers for M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. So if you haven't seen it yet, tune out now. Hey, everybody. This is Ryan from GeekCast Live, and you're listening to Horror Movie Podcast, where we are dead serious about horror movies. Okay, guys, I just want to say one thing. I'm dying to say this. I love how M. Night Shyamalan took the big bad wolf story, because these aren't they're real grandparents. These wolves in sheep's clothing got there before the kids did. And in fact, they, especially the grandmother, participates in wolf-like behavior. The whole sundowning thing is very werewolf-esque. The running around on all fours, which she does quite a bit, the scratching at the doors, the nudity, all of that is very wolf-related. And I think he was definitely riffing on the big bad wolf. And as Rachel mentioned, you got touch of Hansel and Gretel in there with the oven. If you had said this during the main review, I would have given it a 10, just so you know. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I see. Because that solves my main problem I had with the film. Oh, really? What's that? I just don't like the switch that they killed the grandparents. I thought it was unnecessary. You know, we talked about Deborah Logan 
about the de- the devolving of the human body into disease and old age and how terrifying that can be on its own. And I thought this idea of the sundowning was just a brilliant way to take something that's, you know, an actual condition and turn that into this horrifying thing for these kids and the grandfather dealing with dementia and depression. And these are real things that people deal with in real life and how scary that is for these kids who are in peril uh, because of this and because of the distance that their, their mother has put them put between herself and these people. And so that combination of things to me is a real life is real life horror. You know, yeah. we always talk about real life horror and this is this is a great example of what could be considered real life horror. And then when you add that murder element, yes, that happens in real life too, but I just thought it unnecessary. I just thought, why? Who cares? That's not interesting to me. Except when you say, well, this is a little red riding hood story, and this is the wolf getting there first and killing the grandmother, then like, okay, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah. Pretty good. Well, and that's his that's his kind of MO. He loves to riff on classic stories. Yeah. I should have said a bedtime story by M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Rach, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's definitely there. And I, I, I didn't put that together. I think that's a really good reading of it. But I definitely had that feeling throughout of like, these are sort of archetypal things that are happening and... um it's it's making it scarier in a way, though, like you say, that doesn't leave reality. And I don't feel like the explanation is far-fetched either. Like, it kind of all makes perfect sense mm-hmm. um, in a really nice way while incorporating these elements in. In fact, during the oven scenes, I started thinking, you know, just how bizarre fairy tales are that in order for almost anything that happens in one of those darker fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel, I mean, you almost, you would have to be dealing with totally insane people. Yeah. You know? Right. <laughs> and it just, it, it to, to bring that into reality and to see what it would look like actually to have a child crawling into an oven, it's the most bizarre image. And yet it's something that we're all so familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, it's so every day and it, and so I, I thought that was really well done. I'm with you. Could have done without the poop scene. Yeah. I don't think it adds anything. I think it cheapens the movie a little bit. It does. I, I think he was going for repulsion, and I think he was going for, okay, what is the biggest challenge that this germaphobe could yeah, face? Yeah, what's his biggest fear? Yeah, but you've already got the freezing thing with the football. Like, how many... I, I, I mean, maybe I missed it, because Rachel brought it up a few times, but... I didn't notice the constant problem with germs throughout the film. Mm. Um, I know I noticed the setup, and I noticed it toward the end. But was he dealing with this all through the middle of the movie? Yeah, it was. It was. It was sprinkled in there. I didn't know. The only time I noticed it again is when he's like, "Oh, there's something on my hand." That was at the very end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, he didn't struggle with it as much as that. I mean, because I've been around people who were like germaphobes like that. He didn't seem to struggle with it as often as. I'm used to seeing people struggle with that, but yeah, I don't know. I like the freezing up thing because it has to do, do with his belief that he caused the father to leave. There's all this pent up frustration around it. It pays off in a very, is that one of the things you think paid off in too uh, ham fisted way at the end? No, but her looking in the mirror at herself, it's like, okay, if I'm in 
a bedroom with this nutty, crazy lady. Yeah, I'm going to face my fear and look at myself in the mirror. Like, it's like, what? No, that doesn't make yeah, any sense. Yeah, like they sense. both have to sort of overcome their individual fears and be healed by the end somehow. Like, it's a little too neat. Yeah. It wasn't that. It was not a big deal, though. Josh, compared compared to never... glasses of water around the house that happened to be the one thing that kills the alien species hey. feeding your planet. <laughs> both thought the water was contaminated. So that makes sense. Kids are weird like that. But, like, you, if you were scared to death like that, you would not take time to stop and look in the mirror, especially with, you know, Candyman and all that jazz and... Swing away, Jason. Swing away. <laughs> I will. I, you know, I will. But um, I'm just saying the coda though to this movie, like the very ending, is is bizarre. I mean, you've got the rap, and then you finally. I'm. I, I actually thought we were going to get out of this movie without finding out what happened with the mom. Yeah, I did. I did not love that reveal. Well, one there was one degree or one aspect or one reason why I did love it because. Um, it brought home that whole belief I have about how horror happens to those who deserve it least. And it's a sad story. It was sad that, that this mom and her parents were estranged all these years over something that was relatively small. And then the people who deserved it least, which is the grandparents, you know, they were knocked off by these nut jobs. I, I probably shouldn't say it. that was very dismissive. Because in the film, they're classified as suffering from, with um, schizophrenia, right? Did they did they point to that specifically? I don't know if they actually said it. I think one of the kids maybe guesses that. Yeah, it comes up. Yeah, so. Remember, Rachel had a problem with that when we were leaving the theater. Tell it, Rachel. Well, yeah, I just wondered. I mean, I have close friends with schizophrenic children, and I was just thinking... But I feel comfortable watching this film with them. I mean, it, in some ways, it turns those disorders into a horror movie, which in real life, I mean, th- definitely they can be. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not saying that. Um, but it, it felt slightly exploitative. I think it felt like the worst case scenario, the most kind of um, just dramatic and shocking. Um, and least sympathetic renderings of those conditions. And so, yeah, you know, it, it, it did feel a little bit like, wow, the, you know, people that suffer from these, from these disorders already face such stigma and this, something like this sure isn't going to help, you know, kind of a thing. Right. Right. I agree it's with pretty, you. pretty extreme in terms of the characterization of what these two specific characters have gone through and the fact that they're, Based on their crimes, at least of the mother, um, what she that she was even allowed to be in such a minimum security place that she could escape from, you know? Yeah, I mean, was it a prison that they were in? Was it, it like? Sounds like it was just a like a rehab center. Yeah, I mean, these people place. were criminally insane. Like they should have been in a prison. Well, you know, the thing is, and this this is kind of weird, but um, I had a I had a friend when I was growing up who who suffered from schizophrenia and um and with him in his particular case and and the fact is by the way it was a good point you made Rachel because we could actually have listeners listening to this podcast right now who have schizophrenia because with this friend of mine this guy I knew if he was on his medication 
um, he was very functional and you couldn't tell. I mean, he, he acted like everybody else, basically. I mean, he, he lived a very, um, just, I guess, typical life. But when he stopped taking his medication, he would start having these, um, you know, really, I guess, in-depth kind of hallucinations or not not necessarily just this paranoia that was really strong and it and that kind of came through with this these people's beliefs especially the grandmother's belief about this other these alien things in the water or this these creatures I'm like okay there's a paranoia there there's this you know these delusions I mean maybe their narrative that she's created yeah maybe they've been off their medication for like quite some time I don't know. Sure, sure. And I don't know. There seemed to be a slight disconnect between that, though, and then how very um, successful they were in scheming and killing the right people at the right time and Mm -hmm. keeping things secret and keeping this illusion up that they were their grandparents. That seemed all like, you know... I would suggest that they were not keeping that illusion very well. Well, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but, but still, I mean, they had, you know, the wherewithal to say it's there's this condition, sundowning, it's part of getting old, it's, you but know, he's embarrassed, he's ashamed have. of his incontinence, you know. They they had kind of explanations that that Those sense. could all be true. Well, those could all be true. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's, it's interesting. But I agree. I see what you're saying, Rachel. I think it's a good point because, yeah, they they were really good at they seem to be good at turning it on and off mostly, except when it was nighttime. But well, I also felt like there was this core that was kind of sweet in a twisted way is that they they wanted this week with grandchildren. You know, they weren't it wasn't as if they were setting out to just murder people. Um, It's like they were just trying to facilitate this connection that she had lost, you know, and in the end, I guess that's a little, all the more terrifying is that they're somehow doing this out of love or something, you know, <laughs> Yes. this twisted form of love. But. Well, and, and when she's sitting in the rocking chair and laughing wildly at the wall and she says that she's, you have to laugh sometimes to, I guess, stave off the deep darkies or whatever she called it. That was so awesome. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, well, later when you learned about her drowning her children, you're like, okay, that's probably what she was laughing about to stave off that, because, yeah, that probably would, I mean, I would assume that that would eventually catch up with you at some point. I thought I thought she was very sympathetic, actually. Um, as scary as she was, I really felt bad for both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, until the end. And again, that's why I didn't like that turn because the grandpa becomes very mean spirited at the end. And I didn't like that because I felt bad. you know, he was kind of sympathetic in his delusion up until that point. Yeah, it's weird. I almost feel like that scene, cause it followed the very terrifying one with the sister and where she's stabbing and it's just awful. And I almost, do you feel like it was sort of supposed to be a comic relief like the brother has sort of served throughout. I mean, I think it was supposed to be kind of funny to imagine this character who's so paranoid about invisible things on his hands to have that rubbed in his face. I think it was supposed to be horrifying, but also funny in a weird way. And I'm not sure that that worked. 
I hated it. Yeah, I mean, I didn't read it um, to any degree as humor, but I it is it's bizarre. It definitely got a huge laugh in our movie theater. Oh, they laughed really huge laugh. Oh yeah. Well, that's weird. Yeah, I don't think they laughed in my theater. So that, that's that's really weird. I wonder if like the test screenings of this, there were different reactions to that. That would be interesting. I just like that the sundowning was a real thing, and I think those are viable explanations for. You know, other conditions they may have besides, you know, their murderous tendencies, they probably are dealing with these other things. They're probably used to talking about them and their therapy or their, you know, the situation that they were normally in at the center. And so I, don't, I liked all that and I think I thought it played well into the, the real life terror. That's why it worked so well for me because it was at once, you know, before you really know what happened to her, when you assume, at least I was assuming that she really was the mother, um, you know, and she starts hitting herself in the head. I'm thinking this is terrifying. It's unsafe, but I also feel really bad for the trauma that she's clearly gone through, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing I was going to ask you guys about this is, um, did it seem to you like the grandparents, especially like on game night, like that final game night that they were kind of ramping up to this fever pitch and that they were becoming increasingly dangerous because it's like, yeah, they got pretty extreme at the end, but I think, I mean, clearly from hearing about their little alien well, water plan, whatever, it seemed like they were going to try to send the kids through <laughs> to the other side. Well, that's what I was going to say is, were they always planning on killing these kids at the end of this week? I, like, I believe uh, so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they said a couple statements like, now that this is all coming to an end, you know, so it, it did kind of seem like part of the plan. Yeah, so that's why I was okay with, you know, the way it got pretty intense pretty fast because, yeah, they were wrapping it up. But anyways, so one quick note, you guys, and this is kind of, this doesn't have to do with the visit, but I've mentioned it already in this episode. I want to make sure I mentioned it to you too because, I mean, you guys appreciate movies and cinema and stuff, and I think that this kind of an experience would just take you for an insane ride that movie that's out, that's called No Escape with uh, Lake Bell and Owen Wilson. Yeah, you mentioned it to me. Yeah, I found it absolutely horrifying. It took me on a ride as a parent that I just, I, I thought I was going to have a heart attack in the theater because I was just so engaged and involved in that. And I would be really, I mean, I don't know. I don't know that I would recommend it to Rachel just because I don't know her well enough yet to... To try to subject her to something like that. So if kids are involved, that's a whole other level. I'm serious. Like, you got these parents who are trying to, like, you know, get their two young children, you know, out of this horrific situation. And, oh, my goodness, it's very affecting. So, I mean, I, I call it a survival horror flick. It's like a 9.5 out of 10 for me. Um, it's definitely, I mean, if you think you can put yourself through that, I think I highly recommend it at least once. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. I couldn't, I probably couldn't sit through it again. I'm not even kidding. So anyway, check it out. It's called no escape. I just thought I'd throw that in it's a little bonus. <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. So is that all we have to say about the visit? I think so. I, I, I think there are more light moments than I wish there were. Um, that's Same. another reason it's. Or light, but same. But it's still it's still good. 
I uh, thought it was perfect. <laughs> <that way. laughs> nice. Well, I'm glad to hear that about an, an M. Night Shyamalan film. I hope he is back. I hope he stays back. All right. Well, I want to thank our good friend here. And for Josh, even more than a friend, even more special than that. <laughs> I want to thank Rachel for being here on Horror Movie Podcast. It was an honor to have you, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Will you tell the listeners where they can hear you on your awesome podcast? Yes. Um, you can listen to us at Movie Streamcast, and you can subscribe through iTunes. And yeah, hope to have you. Nice. Total pro, Josh. You married a total pro. <laughs> True. <laughs> At this point in episode 69 of Horror Movie Podcast, we are bringing back the continuation of a segment that was cut short back in episode 64. If you'll remember, episode 64 was when we discussed the found footage convention in horror and one of the features in there was a short interview that we did with Michael Steinberg, who is also known as the Found Footage Critic, and it can be found at foundfootagecritic.com. Due to the structure of episode 64, we couldn't fit the entire discussion that we had with Michael in that episode, so I'm going to give you the remainder of our chat that we had with him that night. It was more of an impromptu discussion. <laughs> we called him more or less out of the blue, and he did a great job. And so we wanted to make sure that we featured the entire interview because we do discuss a number of found footage horror films. We were only able to reach Michael on the telephone, so the audio quality is not tremendously great, but we hope that you'll bear with us. Thanks for listening, and so now we'll cut into the remaining portion of the interview with Michael, the found footage critic. Now, Michael, on your site, you also have something that I think is really interesting. You kind of talk about different aspects of found footage filmmaking, different tropes almost, and you, you kind of make the statement that found footage films can't be judged by the same criteria we would judge other films by, which I don't know if I agree with that, but I did like your breakdown, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those. Um, just to go over them briefly, some of those bullet points I see here are limited budget unknown casting, small cast size, limited set locations, and no no soundtrack, which you just talked about. So those I found those are very interesting as I was reading over those on your site. Could you talk a little bit about your approach to that as you're talking about these films critically? Yeah, I think that the, the thing that makes found footage films approachable to many novice filmmakers is also the same, you know, many, many people would call the limitations of not novice filmmakers, like, you know, limited budget and all those things. They would consider that to be something that would actually detract from the film. But when it comes to found footage, I think those limitations are actually things that could actually make the film better. So, Lens you know, realism. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, I've seen a lot of big budget films, for example, that, that have They've just thrown a lot of money into these things, and the film just, it looked like a Hollywood feature, even though it was shot in, in the sound footage style, and it just didn't look right, you know, but when you take all the resources away from a, from a filmmaker, and, and they're just left to their own devices and, you know, what's around them, you know, I think you're going to end up with a better product. So, I guess you could say limited budget is, is, is the first thing, but that also feeds into everything else, like... One of the biggest things that you see in, in a lot of these found footage movies is, is unknown casting. And a lot of times, you know, you go onto a movie website and, and you'll you look at the cast for, for some of these smaller films and 
uh, like half the capital have the same last name. So <laughs> clearly, you know, the, the filmmaker just got his whole family to join in and, mm-hmm. and start filming. I think that has its own pros because these people, they're not trained actors. They're not going to present themselves as trained actors. And it's just going to appear more natural. Also, you're going to have a smaller cast size because, you know, when you're dealing with a limited budget, you know, you're not in a position to really manage that large cast and all of the, the logistics that come along with that. Also, you're going to have uh, limited sets and locations. You know, you're not going to have these big Hollywood sets. You're basically just, you know, when you have a limited budget, you're using what's around you. In many cases, I've read that the filmmakers are using their own houses or the houses and businesses of, of, of friends and family to to actually do the filming. And again, that just lends a certain degree of, of authenticity to the story, to the script. And speaking of script, um, quite often, they're not. this isn't always the case, but, you know, more frequent than, than in a Hollywood film, they, they really don't have a script. They'll have a script outline, and, and they're not writing, you know, the entire movie scene by scene, but they're just saying, well, you know, here's the, here's, you know, for this particular scene, we need to get from here to here. Just kind of talk your way through it and, and make up your own words as you go along. And, you know, you can end up with a more organically, you know, or you're going to end up with a more organic uh, product at the end. It's not going to seem as, as staged. And, you know, when you're dealing with an outline, I think that's more attuned to someone who's not trained in film because if you have, you know, a non-trained actor reading a script, they're, it's going to come across as more robotic than if they're just, you know, having some ad hoc conversation with someone about some topic. You know, and then it's, Again, the camera and and, and filming. Uh, a lot of these, you know, one of the precursors, you know, one of the precursors for our found footage film is that it's it's filmed by some guy or girl off the street who's just filming, and they're using what what's on them, which is typically a cell phone or you know or or, or a camcorder. So they're not going to have the high quality equipment that the you know Hollywood folks are going to have. So you know, again, that just lends more authenticity to it. Um, you know, and then again, special effects. If, you know, a lot of these movies have special effects, because when you're talking about found footage, generally you're talking about, you know, you have these violent murders, serial killers, and, you know, there's a lot of gore that needs to be created for that. Or, you know, if it's not, it doesn't fall in that category, it's usually a, a paranormal, you know, type film where you have ghosts and, and, and you know, and other things. And, you know, so if there is money to be spent, it has to be spent on the special effects because that's going to, you know, that could break, that could kill a movie if it doesn't look right. And, you know, one thing that I like about found footage is because of the limited budget, you generally don't have, you know, CGI. You're looking at more practical special effects, which, um, you know, I think has a, I don't know, has a certain um, look and feel that I kind of like that. You know, you, you look, watch something like Cloverfield, and it's it, it's just too much. It's just too much. You know, and when yes. you're dealing with, yeah, you know, I mean, easy. And, and Cloverfield doesn't look real. I mean, I, I live in New York City, and the city's still here. It wasn't blown up by the monster. So, you know, which again, when you're talking about a you know limited budget, generally you have these these films that are filmed in very remote locations, and so it's not something you typically hear about on the news, like a city being destroyed. So, again, it's you know, hypothetically possible that this film was real because it happened in the backwoods of, of some state and, you know, some state town I never heard of. So, you know, maybe this really did happen as opposed That's to... That's interesting. I've never heard anyone kind of put that spin on the genre because I, as I look at your set, it, a lot of your criticism is based in this 
notion of maintaining realism. And, and I think that's probably true for a lot of people when they look at found footage. But I do love this idea that, no, like, I also want to believe that this happened and I just didn't hear about it. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's something that mm-hmm. I think when Blair Witch Project came out, that was something, you know, people were talking about. Did this actually happen? And, and a lot of people thought it really did. And I love the idea that a film like Cloverfield gets knocked down a peg on uh, in your opinion because, well, I know that that didn't happen. <laughs> because it does. I mean, it, it takes additional suspension of disbelief. I think I'm, I'm beyond that in my own viewing experience, but I think that is cool. That's a really cool way of looking at it because it make, it really immerses you in the genre. I'm looking at your site right now and and I love the, this focus you have on the realism. You say, distinguished from traditional cinematically shot feature films, found footage films are intentionally filmed in a manner that lack the finesse, choreography, refined editing, and polished dialogue in most feature films. You also say, the absolute worst thing a filmmaker can do to destroy the realism of found footage film is to insert a cinematically filmed scene in an otherwise pure found footage experience. So I love the idea that as you're saying, kind of these low-budget aesthetics are actually lending realism to the films. You say a key selling point that impacts the realism of a found footage film is convincing the viewer that this film can actually be found footage. And I wonder if that's yeah. a frustration for you. Because, I mean, it's, it is for me. I'm a documentary filmmaker uh, myself, and so I have a really hard time watching these supposed documentary film crews doing things that there's no way a documentary film crew would ever do. And so it's really difficult for me. I would think that someone who was a big fan as you of the genre would need to remove yourself from that a little bit because it seems like so few films would meet your standard of really fully immersing you in that experience. Yeah, I mean, I have to take everything with a grain of salt and, you know, I have to be pragmatic about my approach. You know, I, I can't just kill every movie because it, you know, fails some, some, you know, high standard litmus test that I have. So, you know, you know, is the film enjoyable? You know, that, that's a big factor. Is the story, does the story make sense? And I will, you know, bite my tongue a lot and say, you know, it was a good movie, you know, had some issues. But, you know, there are very few films that are, you know, you know that are truly pure and, and meet all those, those criteria. Sure. Well, I wonder, though, you have one of your uh, rating criteria is no soundtrack, and I know that's one that Jay is really passionate about himself. I have to say it's one that I don't notice all the time because I'm, you know, so used to watching traditional films. It's very rare that all this, that I'm aware that, oh, it's a little, they snuck a little sound, something beyond the sound design in there. There's actually, <laughs> you know, a, a tiny, the world's tiniest violin is playing in the background. Um, it, it, it stands out more if, if they throw it in at the end. Like I, There are a couple of movies that I've seen where, again, I mentioned one of them, but where there was no soundtrack for the entire film, and then there was some tense scenes at the end, and they threw in some music to, you know, to ratchet that up. And it just, um, all of a sudden I snapped out of it, like, oh, I'm, I'm watching a movie. Yeah, I know 2009's uh, Evil Things did that. Mm-hmm. I watched that recently, and it, like you said, it went along for the majority of the movie. There's, there's no soundtrack, uh, you know, which is sort of keeping with, uh, with, with the found footage style. Then all of a sudden, it's almost like this tonal music just comes in, you know, when things start to, to get crazy. Now... This was a tape. I understand that the the movie was supposedly put together by the killer himself, or he put this together and sent it in. But I don't know that he would have taken the time to throw in a soundtrack at the end of it. Right. 
And even, you're right, Dr. Shock, and the one that bugs me the most, I think, is Diary of the Dead, George Romero's, because they even say in the beginning, one of the characters is like, this is awful footage of people that were killed, and we put in creepy music just to scare you. They say some line like that, and it's painful <laughs> right. to me. To justify it's it. for everything else that's coming after. Yeah, right. One of the right, problems right. I have with Diary of the Dead in particular, I know we're, sorry, I apologize for this little sidetrack here, but yeah. I, I, to me, the thing that takes me out of Diary of the Dead is the camera work, because it looks like Hollywood camera work. Uh, De Palma's Redacted has a similar problem. That you know They do use like security cameras and things like that, but I'm so aware of it when I'm watching Diary of the Dead that this looks like it's staged. The camera's always catching everything at just the right time, and uh, you know, we'll get into this later, but I think that's one of the beauties of the Blair Witch Project. I think the reason that film is so effective is because they really put the actors into that experience and they had to capture what was happening. Not that there was much happening, <laughs> but at least things were happening on the sides of the frame sometime and everything wasn't perfectly lit and perfectly framed. Yeah, and that's, how, that's the approach that Marble Hornets took. I mean, if, if you watch the movies, you know, the YouTube series, all nine hours or so of it, or, or the latest um, sequel, that that came out, you know, a couple months ago. Um, there was no, no title card, no music. Uh, you know, when a person runs, the, the camera's at their side. They're not holding up at eye level running. You know, if when someone's running for their life, right. they're holding the camera up at eye level, uh, you know, running like that. It's, it's swinging at their side. You know, the action isn't always front and center. It's off to the side. Like, it's haphazard. If they ha- it happens to catch, you know, they, well, everything that's caught looks like it was by happenstance, not by design. Um, you know, and, and you know, and that they did a good job in that in that respect. Mm. But yeah, a lot, a lot of these movies, it's like you know, everything's front and center. Every piece of action is front and center, and it's like, come on. So, Michael, found footage critic, what where do you see the found footage convention going? Like, where where do you think this is heading? Is do you think that it will survive, or do you think it's going to slowly fizzle out? I think it'll survive. I think it's it's kind of reaching a peak in the sense that. There are a lot of these coming out, especially you know on YouTube and other you know streaming channels. It just it's so easy to make these films. Um, you know, just for a, a novice filmmaker, it's it's just it's an accessible way to make films. So I think there'll be a lot of these coming out, and and every now and then we'll get a good get a precious gem that kind of be elevated above the rest, and it will you know be something that everyone wants to see. I agree. I th- I personally, I think it reached a saturation point about three or four years ago, and I think we're seeing more films now that actually. I think that's when we were seeing a lot of films that didn't necessarily fit the genre. And now I think we're seeing more films that um, the format really matters uh, to the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, before it was just like everyone's just there was you know no one knew what they were looking at, and they didn't know how to really digest it. Now I think everyone's smarter watching these. The people watching these movies, everyone's smarter from having the experience of seeing many, seeing many of these. So, you know, people who are creating these things have to refine their, their approach in order to, to stand out from everyone else. And I think there are filmmakers looking to tell an interesting found footage story, whereas um, you know, Kyle in his State of the Zombie Address had a funny phrase. He said, just add zombie. And I think that's how found footage was approached for a while, just add found footage. And I don't think – I think that's becoming the case less and less now. I think people are doing it more purposefully, uh, the people that are making these films now. 
personally. Yeah, actually, I, I just saw a, a found footage film the other day. I, my, the rating isn't, my review isn't posted yet. It was uh, World War Dead, uh, Rise of the Fallen, was it Rise of the Fallen, or have you heard of that one? I no. Saw, I saw it on your site there. Yeah, yeah I, I saw it there too. I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it, it was actually a, a found footage film that, that turned into a zombie survival chaser film. So it was it, it was going in a good direction, and then the zombies came, and I'm like, oh, gosh. But that, that film had so many problems, I was just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> World War Dead, Rise of the Fallen. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I got you. Now, it, it's been mostly, you know, found footage has is, is mostly been in, in, uh, in horror. You know, uh, I mean, the majority of the movies, I mean, every now and again, you'll get something like Chronicle that'll come out. Um, that'll be sort of a sci-fi, almost like a like a, an, a superhero origin story. Um, do you think it will extend into any other genres? Or do you think it's just sort of married to horror at this point? And, and for the most part, that's where it's going to stay. Well, recently, well, a couple of years ago, was it? Uh, Project X, that was a comedy. Um, that was yeah. found footage. Um, from what I've read, I think, I don't know how, you know, what the veracity of this is, but, you know, Fantastic Four is supposed to have some found footage element to it. I, I don't, you know, that's what I read, but we'll see. I so, mean, it makes sense that a mockumentary could more easily have comedic elements, but if you're actually talking found footage, it does make sense that it's in kind of a more horror context because something happened <laughs> to these characters. Well, I think it could be really powerful, like, for example, in a romance. It's not necessarily my genre, but do you remember the portions of Cloverfield when it shows, like, their perfect day together on the tape? You know, it's actually pretty effective, I thought. I could see it working yeah. elsewhere. Yeah. I just thought, because I know obviously it's been, it's hard. That's what, that's what most people, when you think found footage, that's the, the, the genre you immediately associate it with. Uh, and there happens like Europa Report, um, which is sort of, which definitely is, is you know, has uh, horror elements in it. That's got a, it's very sci-fi. Um, but, and, and I said, like I said, Chronicle, Chronicle would, is not a, horror movie. I wouldn't call that one a, a, a horror movie at all. Um, and I had forgotten about Project X. That's another one. I just didn't know if there were if it's if it's in the future if it's in the future. I mean, do you see this as and do you think it's going to stay mostly low budget? Do you see I mean, I mean, Cloverfield obviously was not. Cloverfield was was a, you know, just from the names associated with it, that was more of a big budget affair. Do you see them? Do you see more big budget movies down the road? Or do you think this well, is just now going to stay more low budget? Well, I mean, there was recently there was the Pyramid, which was twelve million, which is extraordinarily high for you know one of these films. And mm -hmm. yes. I, I just thought that the film had potential, but it just again it just looked like a Hollywood film, and it just I just think when you try and create a found footage film with a lot of money, it's just it's very difficult because you're you're inclined to throw on a lot of things that you know, you really shouldn't have access to. And it, it just right. looked too refined. Jason Blum um, at Blumhouse, I just found out today, he did a AMA on Reddit the, the day of this recording, and he one of the things he talked about was part of his formula is keeping the budget low um, because it, of what you're talking about. And he said all of our films, the actors and the crew, they all work on scale. Even if they're a big movie star, you know, we have them working on scale. 
And I, there is something about keeping those production costs low that spills over into the film as well. I agree with you. And for the listeners who yeah. don't know, AMA means ask me anything. But go ahead, Michael. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, also, I mean, going back to, 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 to actors, I mean, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to get this expensive actor. But, you know, the minute I see an actor in a found footage film that I know, I'm like, oh, this can't be real because I saw this person in, in a TV series last week. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think having those unknowns, again, it just lends more authenticity to it. Um, uh-huh. it you know, so again, anything, you know, throw money at something to make it better, but generally when it comes to these movies, that you know, the things that would make a Hollywood film great, I think, detract from, you know, the effectiveness of, of found footage. Um, you know, totally, yeah. Like when we watched yeah. Willow Creek, I remember when we reviewed that, I, that was a, something that stuck out like a sore thumb to me. They did the Blair Witch Project thing where they go to the real town and they talk to some people are there are actors and some people are the real people. And it's very obvious when you're watching it who are the real people and who are the actors. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, it's quite a performance and it's taking me out of the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are some Falford movies that Again, they used cast unknowns when they were created, but some of those actors have, have actually, you know, come to gain some notoriety today. And so, you know, you watch those movies today and you're like, oh, that's not really an unknown anymore. And, you know, I know who that yeah. person is. Joshua Leonard type person. Okay. So, yeah. so, Michael, as we start to wrap up, I wonder if you could tell the horror fans out there. Um, Since you've seen so many of these, I mean, it sounds like you've seen a high volume of found footage films. Uh, What would you say are the scariest or most effective found footage horror movies to you? Name name some for us that you that maybe we're not even aware of. Maybe some lesser knowns. Well, I I kind of I I kind of gravitate more towards the um, alien abduction movies myself. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll try to think. So. You're kind of putting me on the spot here. <laughs> oh, well, so, we can uh, take alien abduction will count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he does have a, sp- a place on his site for the listeners where he's done a great job. I, I got to compliment you on this website where you have a top films section and then you have them by genre group, by subgenre, by camera type, by filming reason, by decade. I, I really love that. So, yeah, looking down through, it's good stuff. Yeah, and I would encourage everyone to, to visit soundfootagecritic.com um, and start rating the movies. You know, there's I, I you know when I do a review, I put a site review, but you know all the users can come on and they can start rating and ranking the movies, and then over time, um, you know, as the volume of, of, of ratings increases, we'll get some really good rankings that so people can come on and see what the best film for a specific genre or subgenre is. Um, you know, so. You know, and that will just the accuracy of that will increase the more people that come out and, and start rating. I got you. But I see, like, for Mr. Jones, for example, from 2013, it looks like it has a user rating of 9.1. And that's a film that I'm kicking myself. It's been on my watch list for, like, uh, months now. I've been wanting to see that for several months. Um, so, apparently, did you like Mr. Jones, for example? I, I thought that was a phenomenal film um, for found footage. It was a really good film, you know. I don't know if it was a nine, but it was up there. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, I think another disturbing one was Megan is Missing. Have you heard of that one? I have heard of it. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, it starts a little corny, but then it gets dark, you know, as it, as it starts to get into it. 
Okay, and that's where we cut it off for the found footage critic interview with Michael Steinberg. Make sure you check out Michael at foundfootagecritic.com, as he said. And if you want to hear the beginning portion of that interview, make sure you listen to episode 64 of Horror Movie Podcast. Okay, and I think that just about wraps up episode 69 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you join us next Friday, because October begins, and that means we are going to start reviewing the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise in depth, every single film, and we're going to give you some serious discussion, dead serious discussion, so make sure you join us. We would love to have you. We've already recorded the first episode as I am speaking right now, and I think it turned out really well, so I think people out there are going to enjoy it and we're probably going to provoke some freddy fans so you know bring your fire to the message boards let's let's have this out let's discuss it (laughs) anyways we're glad you're here seriously and we're grateful that you listen make sure you check out my buddy the wolfman josh legary over at his other podcast movie streamcast and he's also on twitter at icarus arts and be sure to check out dr shock at dvdandfatuation.com, which is his blog where he writes a movie review every single day, now and forever, for time and memorial. And memoriam. I don't know what that expression is. To hell with it. And I would love it if you also check out Dr. Shock on his other horror podcast, Land of the Creeps. And Doc Shock is on Twitter, at dbdinfatuation. I am on Movie Podcast Weekly, that is my sister show where we review new movies that are in theaters and that comes out once a week so make sure you check out moviepodcastweekly.com we love your comments so please get involved in the horror movie podcast community you can leave a comment in the show notes or you can email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com you could also call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789 or we are on twitter at horrormoviecast You could subscribe free to our podcast in iTunes. We would love it if you do that. And please leave us an iTunes review. That's the best way you can help this show. The other good way to help this show is to send us a PayPal donation over at moviepodcastweekly.com. You can find all of our past episodes, including the weekly horror movie podcast archive, as well as horror metropolis archive at horrormoviepodcast.com. I want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find more of Fred's music at frederickingram.com. I'll have all this information linked in the show notes for episode 69 here. And I think that's it. So we thank you again for listening and join us again next Friday for some Freddy on Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies.